ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. It is October the 20th, 2019, ten uh, fourteen p.m. Pacific time. I am joined by the amazing Agent Smith, who is here to tell us what's going on, maybe a little bit of history, maybe a little bit of current events, and we're going to interact with the lovely questions that you pass along to us. Agent Smith, how are you doing this week? Can't complain. Foot still hurts. Damn. Ligaments are important, apparently. It's true. I think ligaments oftentimes are overlooked when people are talking about fitness and training and things like that. It ends up being a weak point for me ever since I injured my Achilles many years ago. I notice it whenever... I have inflammation for whatever reason, or if the weather changes pretty drastically, that's one of the first pain points for me. So take care of yourself. The thing that has worked for me is stretching after I exercise. Some people like to stretch before and after. I don't like stretching in general, so I would prefer (laughs) just to pick one of them. So usually I'll do my exercise and then I'll stretch after. And then one thing that's helped me with the like pain of my ligaments is uh, sometimes when I'm just sitting doing other stuff, I'll just roll my ankles around kind of in a circle just to keep them more active. Cause it seems like a lot of times you have just a natural atrophy of the strength of your muscles and ligaments and tendons and all that, if you're not using them. So just finding little opportunities to engage some motion has ended up helping me. And uh, if I can steal your thunder with the disclaimer, I'm not a health or fitness expert, so don't <laughs> don't take my advice as though I'm a doctor telling you what to do. Good move. Yeah. Well, I definitely know way less, so I appreciate the input. Yeah. Have to remember that. <clears throat> health management is an ongoing struggle, especially as we're aging, because I'm 30 years old now. Hell yeah. Yeah, I should probably get struggling on that at some point. Well, let's see. Did you just want to start with the question? Well, usually you ask me if there's some stuff that caught my eye, and I did take a little bit more effort than usual to just kind of browse the the stuff. And one thing that I think is a nice bridge point for something like a Twitch community is seeing some of the loudest pieces that um, got pretty upvoted on Reddit. So uh, both of them kind of involve the usual suspects of things that we talk about. Uh, One of them was a leader among the Kurds was complaining about something the the Turks were up to. What's going on with that? Because we've talked about the Kurds and the Turks and kind of generally speaking, hill people and what that entails of uh, being pushed into an undesirable location and unable to really carve out a space for yourself. Yeah, I got a whole long thing on that. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) Well, let's see. Where do we start on this? Um, Well, for those not familiar with who the Kurds are, they're an ethnic group in the Middle East that is, uh, from what I remember, they're the largest stateless ethnic group in the world. There's something, there's, I think, uh, tens of millions of them. Maybe like, uh, I don't know, spitballing 20, 30 million Kurds, let's say, in the Middle East. But they're kind of split up between Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, roughly. And uh, the different states that they're part of don't 
really have a particularly high opinion of them. They are poorer people. They live in less desirable land that isn't very fertile. And, uh, yeah, as Nero said, they're sort of just mountain people, more or less. And in Turkey in particular, the government, uh, under starting around 1920 or so when Ataturk came to power in Turkey, there was a big push to try to homogenize uh, all the different groups, all the different ethnic groups within Turkey, so that everybody was ethnically Turkish. And that pretty much worked with all of the major ethnic groups, like the Greeks and uh, the Armenians and whatnot, but the Kurds never really quite assimilated, at least not fully. Um, you know, the Turks have tried different things. They've tried to discourage the use of the Kurdish language, uh, they've tried to, you know, they even redefined their ethnicity as quote-unquote mountain Turks <laughs> instead of Kurds. True story. And, uh, you know, lots of assimilation policies that just none of which have worked particularly well. And uh, the result is that there was some bad blood there between the Turkish government and the ethnic Kurdish minority in Turkey. And starting around, I want to say the 1980s, somebody from Turkey would know better than I would, but I think it was in the 1980s that uh, Kurdish radicals formed a, a rebel group or a terrorist group, depending on how you want to frame it, uh, a group called the PKK. And don't ask me what that stands for. I think it's something like Kurdish Workers Party. I'm not sure. Uh, but the PKK engaged in a violent campaign against the Turkish state that included some terrorist attacks that killed Turkish civilians and a few Kurdish civilians as well. So that precipitated a low-intensity conflict, not necessarily an outright rebellion, but, you know, the usual guerrilla tactics, terrorist attacks, assassinations, etc., uh, which the Turkish government responded with state violence of its own, targeting uh, hotbeds of resistance and targeting people that were suspected of supporting the PKK. Now, that violence, I think, died down in the 1990s, I want to say, thereabouts. Either in the late 90s or early aughts, I want to say that there was a truce. And uh, I think that was negotiated after the leader of the PKK was captured. I don't remember. I think his name was Ocalan. That's a guess, though. Don't quote me on that. But uh, after that truce, uh, there was no full peace, per se, but the fighting died down and there was some relative peace and quiet in southeastern Turkey, which is where most of the Kurds in Turkey live. Uh, there's also a lot of Kurds in Istanbul, but most of those are migrant workers. And I think a lot of them tend to assimilate more. But eventually what happened was that uh, there was a political party called the HDP that was formed that was pro-Kurdish. It also had some Turkish voters. Uh, their campaign platform was anti-corruption, liberalization, uh, but also pursuing peace with the uh, Kurdish minority. So that party got a lot of support from Kurdish voters. And uh, for a while, that worked out fine because uh, Recep Erdogan, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, Recep Erdogan, who was the leader of the AKP party and who was in power in Turkey, uh, roughly from the early aughts on. can't remember if he won. He was, I think it was in the early aughts that he was first elected, but please correct me on that in chat if I'm wrong. Uh, you know, usual disclaimer, I'm not an expert in everything I talk about. If 
I say something wrong, biased, uh, etc., you know, please pitch it in chat and point it out. I won't, I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it later. Uh, so participate partic participation is encouraged. Uh, so Erdogan uh, came into power, and one of his core campaign platforms, beyond being pro-Islam and pro-business, was that he was relatively friendly to the Kurds. So he actually kind of got along with the HDP, HDP okay in the beginning. But one of the things that happened around, I don't think it was all that long ago, it was a few years ago, I think, uh, Erdogan wanted to change Turkey's political system to a presidential system. Uh, you can probably guess what position he held in the Turkish government at the time. <laughs> I, think, I believe he had become president by that point. So the HDP was opposed to that. And uh, so, Turkey, uh, so Erdogan organized a referendum uh, in which people would, well, was it a referendum? Oh, hold on, let me think about that. Well, if Brexit taught us anything, I know that referendums are always really great. <clears throat> now, I think it wasn't a referendum. Uh, I, I think it's just that the HDP came out against it and he didn't have the votes. Uh, but then what happened is uh, he called a new election after basically more or less restarting the war with the PKK. You know, he kind of cracked down on the Kurds uh, a little bit and there was a, you know, a terrorist attack that kind of tied into the Syria conflict. Um, certain terrorist groups were linked to the Turkish government at the time, if not also now. And so a lot of Kurds kind of blamed the Turkish government for conspiring with some of its uh, proxies in Syria to launch a terrorist attack in Kurdish territory. So that got the PKK attacking the government again, and then that uh, quiet period of the war with the PKK ended. So Turkey is a very patriotic nationalist country, and so a lot of voters, including some that had been voting for the HDP, uh, switched their vote to the AKP or and or other nationalist parties. And so the result after the new election was that AKP had more votes. In fact, it was enough votes to make the, uh, to implement the changes that they were trying to implement as far as changing the system to a presidential system. So since then, uh, the PKK has been active again and the Turkish government has been going out of its way to try to arrest its members, to crack down on dissent, etc. the usual counterinsurgency type activity, uh, most of which is in southeastern Turkey again. So, that's a kind of a brief, probably oversimplified rundown of Turkish-Kurdish relations over the past hundred some years. Uh, and that's more or less where we are today. Uh, the Syria conflict added a new kind of dimension to that. You know, at first the Turkish government was interested in Syria, I suspect, just to expand its sphere of influence in the Middle East. That had kind of been something that Erdogan had wanted to do. He's been accused of being a de facto neo-Ottoman politician and having a kind of neo-Ottoman ideology. And in so much as that's accurate, uh, one of the potential, uh, a potential fallout of that is that he may be seeking to try to expand Turkey's influence into formerly Ottoman territory uh, like Syria, Iraq, etc. Uh, mostly that had kind of taken the form of interacting with, uh, ironically, the Kurds in northern Iraq, Turkey actually has pretty decent relations with the Kurdish, Kurdish autonomous government in northern Iraq. And that was a very purposeful effort on the part of the Turkish government. 
but in Syria it was different because the principal Kurdish uh, political groups in Syria were the YPG, which is actually a group that was in part founded by former members of the PKK. And so there are some ideological links there as well as organizational links between the two. And so, of course, the Turkish government, seeing the PKK as a terrorist group, does not particularly trust the YPG. And as a result, as the Syrian conflict uh, went along and as the Turkish government became less interested in fighting the Syrian government and propping up its proxy rebel groups uh, in Idlib province, they started focusing more and more on trying to contain the YPG to ensure YPG territory did not become a kind of terrorist safe haven for the PKK across the border uh, from Turkey. Now, they couldn't really do a whole lot because the United States had allied with the Kurds in order to fight the Islamic State. And uh, one of the things the U.S. did after the Islamic State fell is to station uh, special forces troops, mostly, I think, in certain border areas with Turkey in order to discourage and deter the Turkish government from invading Kurdish territory. And that upset the Turkish government immensely because it saw the United States, in their, from their point of view, allying with the terrorist group that was threatening Turkey. That went over about as well as you would expect. Uh, but the effort was successful and the Turkish government was, for the most part, deterred. And the United States kind of waffled on its commitment to the Kurds as various times over the past couple of years, but uh, they always kind of came back. You know, the, uh, the United States would maintain its presence, and generally there was some kind of negotiated agreement worked out. You know, one of the things that had happened relatively recently is that the United States agreed uh, to jointly patrol the border region, uh, the area just across the Turkish border in northern Syria, uh, so that the Turkish government could be more comfortable with having the YPG there. So that's more or less where things were. The United States didn't really have a Syrian policy per se, but it was keeping some troops in the Kurdish territory to protect Kurdish allies, deter Turkey, and to have leverage in the Syrian co conflict generally that could be used to perhaps pressure Iran not to move troops into Syria and otherwise just have some input into whatever eventual peace negotiations were had. Uh, so that's over now. <laughs> the Trump administration... Uh, well, Donald Trump himself specifically has made it pretty clear over the past couple of years that he doesn't want U.S. troops in Syria and that he would like to push them out. Generally, his military advisors uh, of one sort or another convinced him not to do that uh, or distracted him in some way such that he forgot about it. You know, I don't know what exactly they did, but uh, invariably some of his more pronounced announcements that he was pulling troops out ended up getting delayed or fudged or uh, otherwise discounted later on. And then more recently, just I think a week or two ago, uh, the big news was that Donald Trump had had a phone call with Recep Erdogan, again the president of Turkey. And uh, in that phone call, Erdogan threatened, uh, or not even threatened, he declared that he would launch an offensive into Kurdish territory. And apparently, uh, Erdogan was not expecting, well, was expecting pushback because this had happened before. Erdogan or the Turkish government representatives uh, would try to threaten the United States and the Kurds with a potential 
military action, and then there would be a countervailing threat or a deterrence, and then some negotiated agreement. And from what I read, one of the things the Turkish government was trying to do was to use, you know, what we've talked about before, salami tactics. Uh, the idea being that they could get bits and pieces of ter Kurdish territory in northern Syria slowly, piece by piece, uh, through intermittent confrontations and then subsequent negotiations in which small territories would be ceded to them continuously over time until they had a large chunk of the territory that they wanted. Uh, so that was sort of the expectation this time, but they were surprised because uh, Donald Trump responded to this by not really pushing back. It's not really clear if he explicitly said that he was going to pull troops out or if he was going to do nothing or if he was just ambiguous, but uh, whatever he said, the Turkish government took, an op took it as an opportunity uh, to actually launch an invasion of Kurdish territory in northern Syria. Uh, Donald Trump himself said he didn't want the U.S. caught up in another Middle East war, uh, so that was nominally his rationalization for that. Uh, it's unclear if Turkey called a bluff or if Trump just wanted an excuse to leave and kind of took it. That, that's still a little uh, unsettled at this point. So let's see. So that's the, that was the uh, zeitgeist. Well, not the zeitgeist, but that was the, uh, the genesis of the Turkish invasion of Kurdish territory in northern Syria. Now, it's important to note here that at first... Uh, the Trump administration only indicated after the phone call that they were going to pull troops out, that is American troops, out of the border region. They didn't say that they were going to necessarily pull out of all of Kurdish-held territory in Syria. It was specifically the border region uh, along the border with Turkey. And that was an, that's a region that the Turkish government has said over the past few months that it wants to turn into a safe zone. Uh, the idea being that they can resettle refugees, Syrian refugees, currently in Turkey, into that safe zone, uh, so that they don't, so that they're not in Turkey, basically, because that's kind of getting to be a political issue there. Uh, I suspect they're also thinking about relocating rebels in Idlib province there, since Idlib province has been under a lot of pressure from the Syrian army and the Russian army, and the Turkish government hasn't really been pushing back there. So I kind of suspect they want to relocate a very large number of Syrian refugees and Syrian rebel groups into that uh, territory along the border so that they can, in effect, deny it to the Kurds there, uh, or at least to the YPG. Uh, in effect, it would become a kind of proxy region of the Turkish government. That's a speculation on my part, but I kind of think that's more the gist of it than just relocating refugees. So let's see, the SDF, that is to say the Syrian Democratic Front, which is sort of this umbrella group that is basically the political authority in Kurdish-held territories there. Uh, the SDF was not happy. Um, they said that they had been stabbed in the back and betrayed by their American ally. Uh, it's uh, important to note here that they have good reason to be upset because not only, beyond just whether or not they were quote-unquote, stabbed in the back. Keep in mind that the border regions that we're talking about are actually uh, the parts of Kurdish territory that are the most densely populated. So this is kind of the core of their territory here. Even if it is a relatively slim sliver of territory, uh, a number of the larger Kurdish towns and cities in eastern Syria are located there. So it's uh, a pretty bad loss for them uh, to lose that territory to Turkey. And it puts them in a very difficult position. 
since the Turks have started their operation, uh, again, they've said that it was initially that it was just going to be the border region. They've hinted that they're thinking about expanding it further south and east. Uh, already got that. And from that point, the U.S. withdrew um, withdrew its troops from the border region. Before it had been announced, but it hadn't actually been done. Uh, but the Turkish operations were ongoing anyway. They'd already started before the U.S. troops had technically left. And so then the U.S. troops were formally pulled out uh, out of that border region. So let's see, the fallout of that is that the Kurds made a deal with the Syrian government. And so Syrian troops uh, moved into the border region on their own. They avoided the areas where Turkish troops were located. And uh, it was a pretty broad-based offensive from Turkey. So for the most part, Syrian troops have not exactly moved into in that entire border region. Rather, it seems they've focused on moving into the westernmost part, where, uh, again, Turkish operations are not present. And I think mostly that's Manbij, which is sort of a city along the um, Euphrates River, I think it is, the big river that runs through eastern Syria. And that had been a flashpoint in Turkish-Kurdish-American relations before. But uh, the Kurds, for their part, don't well they know that the united states isn't gonna kind of go to bat for them here so they're trying to make some kind of military alliance with the syrian government so that syrian troops um possibly with russian backing will try to deter the turkish government if not actually fight them so the russians for their part have said they won't let syrian and turkish troops clash and currently they have military police uh, patrolling with Syrians in Mambij, again, that western part of that border region we're talking about. And so it seems that the Russians may be trying to do basically what the United States had been doing before, which is to have their own troops there to act as a deterrent. You know, if the Turks were to attack them, they might kill some Russians. And that, of course, would precipitate a significant confrontation, at least, certainly a deterioration in relations. Uh, so that could be an effective deterrence, but it's not entirely clear just how committed the Russians really are uh, to helping out the Kurds here or the Syrian army there. Uh, keep in mind that Russia wants good relations with Turkey. Uh, even if Russia is allied with Syria, Syria is not like a great prize in the Middle East, suffice to say. It's a failed state. It has a collapsed economy. Um, its society is just shattered uh, due to the civil war that's been fought over the past almost 10 years now going on, 2011 or so, I think is when it started. So yes, the Russian government definitely wants to signal to the region that it stands by its allies by propping up the Syrian government, but the Turkish government is the most powerful in the Middle East. It has the most powerful army. It has the largest economy. And it's a traditional ally of the West that seems to be open to a shift in its alliance alignment. And that means that the, Turkey, that the Turkish government is a much more attractive partner at this point. So Russia will do what it can probably to stand by the Syrian government, but I don't think it's going to go all out to pressure Turkey either, because I think they're going to try to basically have their cake and eat it too by trying to stay on the good side of both the Syrian government and the Turkish government. Whether or not they can do that is a little ambiguous at this point. It's... Uh, it's going to be hard since the Syrian government definitely wants its territory back in eastern Syria. Uh, so they may well put the Russian, their Russian backers in an awkward position uh, by instigating some kind of confrontation with Turkey. That's an outside possibility. I suspect that the Syrians will just take what they can get without 
too much confrontation, but it's always a possibility. Never discount the stupidity of dictators. Uh, Russia has said that they're going to try to mediate uh, between them, so that's more likely than just not letting them fight, which suggests that the Russians would get directly involved. I don't think they'll do that. Uh, but a mediated settlement is entirely feasible at this point. And I suspect that the Turkish government would be pretty amenable to that. You know, the Turkish government is mostly concerned about the YPG, so it doesn't really care who controls Kurdish-held territory in eastern Syria, just so long as it's not the YPG. Syrian government is fine, because they know the Syrian government doesn't get along with them in particularly well either. Uh, so that's workable for them, so long as they don't let the YPG operate openly as part of whatever agreement they reach. So that's probably going to be the next step going forward. Uh, the Trump administration is in damage control. It's been Their move in the Middle East has been really unpopular amongst broad segments of the public, at least those who are kind of invested in it. Uh, there's a lot of sympathy for Kurds since the United States has fought with them before. Uh, they fought with them in the first Gulf War. They fought with them during an uprising in the 90s. Uh, fought with them again in the second Iraq war. And so they're, and again, fought with them against the Islamic State. So there's uh, kind of an affinity amongst a lot of people, especially in the US military, uh, for Kurdish rebels and fighting fighters and whatnot. So they're particularly upset. And uh, the foreign policy establishment is also upset because they see, they perceive the US government to have abandoned any leverage in the Syrian conflict that could have been used to pursue American interests and preferences uh, in both the conflict, if not also the region generally. Uh, so for them, uh, it's a bit of a catastrophe. So the Trump administration is responding to that uh, in part by demanding an immediate truce. That was sort of their initial reaction in the days following the, uh, the invasion. Uh, the Trump administration demanded a truce between Turks and Kurds. Uh, Trump apparently sent a letter to Erdogan threatening to destroy Turkey's economy if Turkey didn't make a deal. Uh, Erdogan claims to have flown it, thrown it in the trash, which kind of indicates how well that went down. Uh, Turkey did agree to receive a U.S. delegation to negotiate the issue. Erdogan at first said that he wouldn't meet them, that he only wanted to meet with Trump. Uh, but he later walked that back and eventually did meet them. So Congress, for its part, in the United States, uh, passed sanctions targeting Turkey. I think they targeted the, their Defense Department and some of the AKP's leaders. Uh, you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong on that, Chad, but I believe that to be the case. Uh, the Turks, for their part, haven't shown, haven't really responded strongly to it yet. Uh, they see, again, like I was saying before, they see moving on this territory and against the YBG as a core national security interest for them. Because, again, they see them explicitly as terrorists. Um, but another rationale for this Turkish invasion here that's worth mentioning. Uh, Erdogan, uh, Nero, have you heard of a wag the dog? How are you AFK? No, I had myself muted. Uh, yes, wag the dog is basically throwing some really saucy topic in front of the public to captivate their attention, usually when you're trying to distract them from something that's actually more impactful that you feel like they would dislike. Perfect. <laughs> yeah, we talk about yeah. that quite a bit with Kukio, actually, because uh, especially with elections and stuff coming up, a lot of times people will... Uh, 
people being the candidates, they'll focus a lot on those uh, hot topic issues that influence very few people and on the larger scale of the U.S. economy do almost nothing, but they really push people's emotional buttons. And that ends up being a really effective distractor from stuff like this situation here, where it involves the survival and uh, relationships with of people that we've worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that long-term uh, kind of overview of the situation in the region. We have talked about the Kurds before, but that was a, a pretty nice encapsulation of it overall. If you're thinking about content for yourself, that to me seems like a really good format where you take like 10, 15 minutes and just catch everybody up and then kind of tell them what the recent moves have been. Yeah. My interpretation of this one based on your explanation here is that it kind of fits with Trump's theme of he really likes to posture and shake hands with other strongman archetype leaders. So Erdogan kind of is that similar style where he has that like t- more tough guy persona where he wants to make bold and strong moves and things like that and that probably resonated with Trump and he can say certain stuff that I think oftentimes doesn't realize the larger impact of what that's going to mean for the big picture, because in the moment it seemed like a, a fun and tough thing to do. Yeah. So in this case, it wasn't like a huge move strategically. Like he didn't move forces into or out of someone, but he did set an intention somewhere that is very much against a lot of other people, even in his base. Cause we've talked about the Kurds before and how, they in a way represent us in our kind of fledgling uh, revolutionary state where we're trying to fight for freedoms and democracy and our own kind of will as a nation. They're trying to do that right now for themselves. So in that sense, us cheering for them is a very kind of standard emotional uh, position that many Americans would have. So for him to throw in his lot with Erdogan is very strange because most Americans, I think, don't really have that much knowledge of Turkey in general. And if they do have knowledge of Turkey and of uh, of the Kurds, they're pretty much always going to go for the Kurds if they're kind of that standard American archetype of I love freedom and liberty and all that kind of stuff. And maybe coming from either a secular worldview or a Christian worldview where... Uh, say Erdogan being pro-Islam is not going to win points for them. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. Yeah, there's uh, Turkish-American relations have not been great for a while. You know, Erdogan has really been trying to uh, set out on his own almost, you know, to kind of have an independent foreign policy. I don't think he wants to break away uh, from Turkey's relationship with the U.S. per se, I think he just wants uh, something more autonomous. You know, he kind of wants to do his own thing, make his own deals. So I'm not, I'm not really, I don't predict um, some kind of Turkish alliance with Russia. I don't think that's really in the cards. But yeah, I think uh, he is definitely kind of causing some friction there. You know, there was the whole pastor thing last year. You know, the Kurds now are an issue, and then the whole Syrian war caused a lot of tensions you know the turkish government kind of assumed that the united states would help them out with that and then it just kind of didn't (laughs) so there's a little bit of enmity from that as well i think 
But uh, yeah, going back to Wag the Dog, uh, Erdogan uh, and the AKP have not been doing well politically in Turkey. They're still they still have a lot of support. You know, don't get me wrong, but uh, they don't have quite the overwhelming support that they used to have. Uh, you know, in recent elections in uh, Turkey saw the AKP lose Istanbul, which is easily the largest and most important city in Turkey, economically, politically, and socially. Uh, they lost that to a uh, rival political coalition. Uh, not only did they lose it, they actually um, lost, the AKP candidate lost uh, the election, but then disputed the results and the Turkish government weighed in and said that there were election regularities and then ordered it to, ordered the election to be run again. So a lot of people cried foul and said that they were just being sore losers, basically, and that they were just trying to uh, undo the loss, basically, by running it again. And uh, so the election was run again, and not only did the opponent uh, beat the AKP candidate again, uh, he actually beat him by an even larger margin. So that was uh, not great for the AKP, not, not looking too good there. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, the AKP popularity has also taken a hit from Turkey's shaky economy. Uh, it's been suffering from increasing inflation. That's uh, partly due to uh, the AKP and specifically Erdogan, probably, uh, really pressuring Turkish banks to lend to politically connected businessmen. That's kind of difficult to prove, but it's pretty established that the banks are politically connected and that their lending is not entirely based on what they think will get the best return, but on who they kind of uh, think that they should give money to in order to get political favor. So politicizing banks is a really great way to cause a financial crisis. They're not there yet, uh, but they have been dumping so much money into the Turkish economy that it's causing it to overheat. And uh, the Turkish government does not seem particularly amenable to the idea of raising interest rates to deal with it. Erdogan is on record already several times as saying that uh, interest rates need to go lower, not higher. <laughs> which is the opposite of what you want to do when your economy is experiencing a lot of inflation. So uh, just the fact that he came out and challenged the central bank not to raise interest rates was enough to shake market confidence, and that created a, a sort of a minor withdrawal of uh, foreign investment from Turkey, which only served to precipitate the problems that were being caused economically by the inflation. So Turkey's economy is not doing great right now. It's in a... I think it technically is in recession right now. Uh, so that's also causing a hit to political popularity. And then also uh, there's a number of people, including former high-ranking members of the AKP who have defected, who have left the party and formed their own parties because they don't like the direction that uh, Erdogan is taking the party. The party was not originally uh, Erdogan's party per se. It was not originally meant to be like a vehicle for uh, the aggrandizement and empowerment of Erdogan personally. It was originally uh, a movement. It was originally pro-business uh, and socially conservative. That was sort of their vision for Turkey, and uh, it had got broad popularity on the back of that campaign platform. It was only later on that Erdogan became more and more dictatorial, more and more about centralizing power in him, not only in the government, but within the party itself. And so that loss of... Uh, democracy, uh, de democratic decision-making within the party apparatus has alienated people, and now uh, some powerful figures have defected and left and are trying to run against Erdogan. So all told, there's been some problems facing the AKP, and it may be that Erdogan saw this 
opportunity here as a way to wag the dog, that is to say, to distract the public uh, from a lot of those problems. Yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes you're considering what people do with power because it's it's pretty tempting. There's that saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And maybe he started out like as a politician with good intentions where he has a vision that a lot of other people agree with and he wants to focus on like serving the people and that kind of thing. And then upon winning the office realizes there's a lot of opportunity for personal gain and then moving more and more in that direction. It's tough to say because you would have to know the guy personally back then and now to be able to make that assessment. It's, it's possible that some people scheme their way to the top where they have some plan to push the people's buttons to win them over, but without an actual genuine intention of changing their circumstances for the better, just doing that as a, a means to an end sort of thing. Well, what evidence we have about Erdogan's attention, intentions are not particularly positive. Uh, he used to work with a group called, um, well, the Gulenists, basically. It was a, in Turkey, there used, well, used to be a large uh, private sector network of uh, educational institutions that were run by a religious figure named Gulen, the guy who actually lives in the United States. And uh, he had a particular vision of Islam that emphasized, you know, the commercial self-discipline, you know, working hard, etc. And uh, in his educational institutions that he funded as part of his movement, uh, he emphasized, uh, what would you call them, mentors. He had this sort of mentor system where you would be assigned a mentor in the school and then you would work very closely with that mentor over a long period of time, uh, almost a kind of apprentice-like relationship. Now, because he did this over successive generations, uh, you know, since people would graduate the school and then themselves frequently become mentors in the school, uh, he built a pretty large network of people uh, who had ties to, or at least from, uh, his Gulenist educational institutions. And uh, he allied with Erdogan and the AKP early on in the AKP's governance, uh, AKP's rule in Turkey, uh, in order to fight the military, because the military is and uh, a very powerful institution in Turkey and had been even more powerful. Uh, Turkey, uh, Turkey's military is, of course, well known for having launched several coups over the past hundred some years, overthrowing uh, civilian governments. And so after Turkey democratized in the late 90s, uh, the Turkish military, even still, uh, wielded significant influence within government and was not shy about throwing its weight around and pressuring civilian leaders. So the AKP didn't like that. You know, they wanted authentic civilian governance, as a lot of people who were for uh, democratization of Turkish politics and political culture were. And they worked with Gulenist infiltrators who were in the military uh, to try to discover ultranationalist cells operating in the Turkish military, uh, which they successfully did. You know, they, there was a number of wiretap operations done by Gulenists, uh, in which they which were turned over to Turkish government investigators that were used to arrest ultranationalists in the Turkish military. Now, the effect of that was to undermine the Turkish military's ability to pressure the civilian government. You know, they couldn't pretend like it was just a civilian government and they were just a normal military department. 
Uh, they had to basically admit that there had been shenanigans going on in the military, and after that they backed off and started to observe more of what would be considered normal civil-military relations uh, in Turkey's political system. So the Gulenists were willing to do that, but eventually they were among Erdo they were among the first of Erdogan's allies to get sick of him and the direction that he was going in, and they actually turned on him. And they started releasing recorded conversations of Erdogan engaging in basically suspected corruption, uh, including one, and I think we talked about this when it happened way back when, uh, they released a recording of Erdogan talking to his son explaining how to launder money, <laughs> which was a little incriminating. <laughs> well, you can imagine how well Erdogan took that, and he basically declared war on Gulenists. And it's at this point that I kind of suspect that he uh, reconciled with the military. Because the military obviously didn't like the Gulenists at all at that point. So it seems like uh, Erdogan uh, basically agreed to take the pressure off the Turkish military if they would agree to help him root out all of these people uh, who had a background in Gulenist education institutions. And he's done this intermittently over the past few years while he'll just root out anybody and everybody from public office of almost any kind who has a background at a Gulenist school. And uh, he did that. He was relatively light on that initially, but after the coup attempt a few years ago, uh, that's when they kicked it into high gear, and they've basically just been purging Turkey's political system and political institutions uh, of anybody who went to school at a Gulenist school. You know, it doesn't even matter if you're actually yourself really a part of a Gulenist network or you know, what you actually think, just having gone to the school is enough to get you fired. Uh, and that's, he's fired thousands and thousands of people for just that reason on trumped up charges of uh, connections to terrorist networks or some such, basically trumped up charges of uh, sedition of one sort or another. Turkey's legal system is not great. <laughs> you know, they, it's very easy to convict somebody on national security grounds in Turkey. That's partly a legacy of successive military governments there, but the civilian governments after democratization have been maintained a lot of those rules and have not been shy about using them, uh, especially, again, after the coup attempt a few years ago. Fuzzy Cord with an, a great joke here. Don't actually launder this money, but if you were going to launder this money, this is how you would do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty yeah, funny that the difference between like actually getting caught in the act versus having information that indicates that you're probably up to something bad. It's like, why would you need to know how to launder money if you were never involved in that kind of activity? Uh-oh. <laughs> well, if Turkey's democracy were a little healthier, the public probably would have turned on them. But the trouble, the trouble with Turkey's political system and political culture is that it's much more emphasized, it's much more focused on patronage uh, than it is on policy. And uh, there's a lot of people in Turkey who are, who benefit from uh, the AKP's patronage politics. And uh, that in conjunction with uh, the significance of Turkish history also means they get a lot of support. You know, keep in mind that the Turkish military basically ran Turkey for most of the 20th century. And uh, their political platform was to secularize and modernize Turkey. And that really agitated a lot of the socially conservative people living in rural Turkey. But the Turkish government responded violently uh, at that time to anybody uh, who criticized it. They, they were not very tolerant of dissent. 
and successive attempts by various uh, religious, uh, religious political parties in Turkey who were somewhat critical of the Turkish military and Ataturk and some of the modernization programs that were being implemented. A lot of those were met with coups or violence or you know, various forms of oppression and repression. And as a result of that happening over the course of several decades, by the time Turkey democratized, there was a very large constituency of people who absolutely did not trust the Turkish military and did not trust the secular economic and political elite in Turkey. So Erdogan, and this is going to sound very familiar by this point, Erdogan became seen as the anti-establishment candidate who was going to tear down the old oppressive system and implement actual people's rule following democratization. Where have we heard that before? Well, at first, very popular, democratization went well. He helped modernize the economy by opening it up. Everything was pretty gravy for a while, but then eventually he started getting more and more power hungry, basically centralizing more power in his political office and within the party itself. Yeah, the now, drain the swamp slogan comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, drain the swamp. Yeah, you can drain it, then you can fill it up again with your own stuff. <laughs> with your own swamp. Yeah. Or not, I mean, technically they didn't say that they weren't going to refill it with another swamp. That's the, I guess, the beauty and the nastiness of incomplete information is you can have a fully true statement that implies a lot of bad stuff, but it doesn't overtly say it. And oftentimes you can kind of dance around that. It's just kind of language word games. It's pretty amazing how effective language can be as a tool for achieving certain ends, even if the criteria for what you're saying are not fully met. Oh yeah, you know, that's that's the power of political rhetoric, which has been, I think, somewhat discounted over the past, gosh, maybe 20, 30 years now, uh, because politics in the West in particular became so staid and so by the book, so focus group oriented, you know, it was just very, it became very technical and dry that uh, political rhetoric lost its power. And eventually it kind of took colorful new politician, uh, politicians, I should say, in various Western countries to kind of rediscover that. And so we're kind of learning what that looks like, <laughs> rediscovering what that looks like. It's um, not to everybody's taste, but I think it is a useful skill when used well. But you're right, it is very powerful. It can be, uh, it can really move people. Uh, to really hear things, uh, pl hear political messages from a spoken in a particular way, hitting on particular points. You know, having legitimacy and trust is the most powerful tool in politics. And rhetoric is one way to kind of get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's where we are right now. You know, establishment political players in the West, if not, you know, if not the world writ large at this point, have lost significant amounts of trust and legitimacy. And there's just no amount of talking that they can really do to get it back. And because trust has fallen so much, uh, it's not really too hard to get people's support so long as you're just speaking out against those elites. And that's what happened in Turkey. You know, the Turkish military and the secular Ataturk uh, clique, if you want to call it that, were in power that so long that they just became associated with the establishment and people just don't trust them, even now. People will trust the AKP and Erdogan over 
the secular alternative, you know, the secular nationalist parties, there's, there's a couple. Uh, even now, a lot of people don't trust them because they just see them as the establishment because they were in power for so long. You know, even after everything that Erdogan has done, people are just that suspicious of what they perceive to be the deep state, as they call it. And that's just a very difficult political circumstance to unwind. You know, you really just have to restore trust, but, you know, trust is not an easy thing to build. It just kind of takes time. Probably will require Erdogan to screw up somehow and lose support. That's the other side of that formula. You have to do everything right yourself by rebuilding trust, and then you have to get the other guy to screw up. Those are the two things that kind of lead to the uh, eventual recovery of trust and a restoration of something resembling normal politics, or at least what we used to consider uh, normal politics in the West. We actually had a, a little bit of that in the World of Warcraft context yesterday and the day before uh, related to a new person joining our team. So we have approaching 40 people who are core members on this team, and we got a new guy. And the new guy shows up, and he wants to be one of the top priority people in the whole group, where we've known each other, for some of us, for many, many years. So the trust that we've built is based on just human interpersonal friendship. Maybe they've supported my stream for a long time. Maybe I've met them in real life. Maybe they've helped each other out doing a bunch of quests and their adventuring and things like that. So they've built a lot of a trust by being consistent over time. And this guy comes in and he's basically expecting to be trusted as well as anyone else, if not more than that, by stating his intentions. And I was trying to explain that trust is built by dedicated effort over time, and there isn't really a substitute for it. You can even give someone lavish gifts and whatnot, but I feel like that's not the same thing as trust. That's like a very short-term band-aid kind of thing, but it's not really the same as loyalty and consistency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well put. That's not something that you can uh, easily conjure. You really do have to work at it. Suffice to say, there's lots of work to do in the West right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Among other places. It's not just Europe and the United States. It's a worldwide phenomena at this point, which we've talked about before. But yeah, that's, uh, that's something that the next decade will probably be defined by. Various attempts by various political parties to try to restore that trust that's been lost and build legitimacy such that they can actually kind of win some support and govern again. Or not. Or fail miserably. That's also entirely possible. You know, the uh, one of the trademarks of uh, political systems like Turkey right now, where you have a strongman leader riding a kind of populist wave, is that the opposition is very dysfunctional and incapable of coordinating with each other because they can't agree on a common platform. So that's a, a clear pattern in multiple countries. You know, you can see that in France, obviously the UK, Germany, I mean, uh, India. Uh, Japan's been like that for a long time, but continues to be the case now. Uh, yeah, it's, it's super common. You really just have an opposition, whatever group of opposition parties there are in a country, 
they just seem to have a lot of trouble coordinating against these sort of new populist movements that have cropped up. And partly that's just because of historical enmity between these other opposition groups, since a lot of them have very different ideologies and perspectives and priorities and whatnot. But uh, there doesn't seem to be a lot of, how should I, self-awareness about the need to kind of put those aside to build a strong coalition, to build a winning coalition. Yeah, that's another problem in politics. You know, a lot of people get into politics and they kind of make it about them rather than about the policy. Um, that kind of creates problems later on because uh, if you make it about yourself, if you make it more about your personality in person, then if you have bad individual relations with the leaders of other parties, that makes coalition building almost impossible. You know, if you want to build a successful coalition, you really have to put aside your own personal preferences and think about what's good for the political party, what's good for the long term, you know, strategic planning, etc. And uh, personalized politics do not lend themselves to such considerations. That's been proven time and time again. Anyway, this is a wild-ass tangent. <laughs> yeah, but it's an important wild-ass tangent, and that's what we do best here at the Agent Smith Discussions. <laughs> we try. Yeah. Well, that was really well, fun uh, spin-off of the Kurdish question, which I think is what we started with there. <laughs> yep, yep. We're about halfway through that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, to get back to that... Um, so the next thing that happened, yeah, last time when we were <laughs> we were still talking about that, it was, um, yeah, the Turks were getting pressured uh, by Congress and sort of kind of by the Trump administration. And I was explaining that um, the Turkish government's motivation was partly, again, national security considerations to crack down on the PKK-associated YPG. But then also part of the motiva motivation was probably a wag the dog. Uh, Erdogan probably wanted to distract the public by having this invasion. So after that, uh, the United States has since announced that there's going to be a full withdrawal from Syria and that U.S. troops are going to be moved from Syria into western Iraq. And the idea, that, uh, so says President Trump, is that they'll be used to ensure that the Islamic State does not return, which had been one of the major criticisms of the Kurdish Syria policy uh, after the fact. Uh, the idea, part of the justification for the U.S. being in eastern Syria uh, was to ensure that the Islamic State and their various associated and allied terrorists would not make some kind of return, would not successfully attack and eject the Kurds from that territory and set up another caliphate. So the U.S. troops there, technically there for that reason, Partly also for the other reasons I discussed, protecting the Kurds, deterring Turkey, leverage in the Syria conflict. I had a, on my moribund podcast that I technically still have and am still working on, I had a whole series on Syria, so I kind of talked more about some of the background stuff there. So if there is anybody interested in that, that could be something worth checking out if you're willing to listen to somebody very inexperienced with podcasts, take a first crack at it. It doesn't make for easy listening, but there's. I'd like to think that there's at least some useful information there for people interested. So, part of the justification was to fight Daesh. Technically, the Trump administration can deflect that particular criticism 
by saying that the troops will not completely leave the region. They'll be in neighboring Iraq and ready to come back in if the Islamic State seems to be making progress of some kind. Uh, the president has also been pushing for a deal between the Turks and Kurds. Congress already applied sanctions, basically demanding this as a condition for the lifting of the sanctions. There has been an agreement to stop the fighting, so technically there is a kind of pseudo ceasefire. I don't think it's a formal ceasefire, but Turkey agreed to stop fighting in order to allow the Kurds to withdraw from the region. Now, I think that's supposed to be more just the YPG withdrawing from the region, but a lot of actual just civilian Kurds have been leaving as well uh, for fear of uh, violence by either to the Turkish military itself or Turkish allied uh, proxy rebel groups that uh, Turkey frequently uses in operations in Turkey. And there, are, that's not entirely a, a fear without reason. There have been, since the Turkish invasion started, some reports of human rights abuses. Um, the one I remember is that there was a YPG, I think, mayor of a Kurdish city that was taken, whom was pulled from her car, beaten, and then shot to death uh, by Syrian rebel groups associated with Turkey. And there have been similar other such reports, apparently. So lots of fear uh, amongst the Kurds living in this border region. And uh, they've been trying to get out and have been flocking to some uh, refugee camps that have been set up further south. <clears throat> Let's see. So the, where were we? So that's kind of where we are now. That ceasefire is technically still in place and the withdrawal is ongoing. There have been reports of violations of the ceasefire, but it's just kind of what I would expect at this point. Uh, you can see that also in eastern Ukraine, where there's technically been a ceasefire for several years now, but it also gets pretty regularly broken. Uh, Trump has also issued statements suggesting that the U.S. will not substantively commit to stopping a Kurdish advance. I'm sorry, Turkish advance. It should be Turkish. Turkish. Let me correct that. So while the Trump administration has nominally said that they don't want fighting between the Kurds and the Turks and uh, that they don't want this to turn into a big mess for their former allies, the Trump administration has also kind of doubled down on the withdrawal. And uh, Trump himself has made a couple of statements to this effect. Um, one of them is that the Kurds were, quote unquote, not at Normandy, uh, referring, of course, to the D-Day landings in World War II. He's referred to the Kurds as, quote-unquote, no angels. Uh, he's also made the analogy that the Turks and Kurds fighting is like a schoolyard, schoolyard fight where you have to let them fight and then separate them. And he suggested the Kurds were releasing Islamic State prisoners to pressure the U.S. into coming back, which one European diplomat referred to as, quote-unquote, insane. So some pretty strong signals there that the United States is probably not going to be coming back in uh, to help the Kurds here, at least as far as deterring Turkey. Uh, the Kurds probably will have to make some kind of deal with the Syrian government if they want to preserve whatever autonomy they can. So let's see. Full withdrawal suggests U.S. ending presence in Syria conflict. That's probably going to be the implication here. Um, some of the broader implications of that uh, is that it'll ease pressure on Iran since nominally uh, what a lot of people in the foreign policy establishment wanted to do was use the removal of U.S. troops from eastern Syria uh, as a bargaining chip to try to keep the Iranian military out of Syria, uh, which is an, was an objective for both the Saudis and the Israelis. 
that's probably not going to happen now since the U.S. basically has no leverage to really use in Syria to do that. Uh, maybe they could tie it into the overarching tension and negotiation with Iran over uh, its nuclear program, but uh, if you've been following that, <laughs> Iran hasn't exactly been backed into too much of a corner on that. Uh, so not having, not feeling that they need to give up concessions vis-a-vis -vis its missile and nuclear program, I don't know how pressured they're going to feel to try to give concessions on Iranian military presence in Syria. So that doesn't seem particularly likely at this point. Uh, the Israelis, for their part, have been striking Iranian military targets in Syria uh, over the past few months. Uh, There's a particular spat of them a little uh, a few weeks ago, I think. Maybe it was longer than that. Uh, so it's possible that Israel may respond here to this U.S. withdrawal by doubling down and really hitting the Iranians even harder. Uh, but it's also possible they won't for the following reason, which is that their compact with the Saudis uh, may no longer have much value. The Saudis, for their part, uh, and this is something else we might talk about later, the Saudis have been responding to the lack of American action uh, in response to the Iranian, the suspected Iranian attack on the Saudi oil refinery a few weeks ago. Uh, the Saudis have responded to that uh, by becoming much less belligerent towards Iran and reaching out for compromise. Uh, that lack of U.S. response has really shaken the Saudi government, apparently, and they're really actually furtively pursuing some kind of negotiated settlement with Iran at this point, which is a pretty dramatic turnaround from where they were before. So the fact that the Saudis are doing that means that the principal reason for the detente between Saudi Arabia and Israel uh, seems to be going away. Uh, that had facilitated, that common tension with Iran had facilitated a kind of de facto alliance between the Saudi and Israeli governments, but uh, since the Saudis are moving away from that, it may be that that compact is nearing an end. So cooperation there is less likely, and that in turn may cause Tel Aviv to be more concerned uh, about its ability to operate there, not only because of a perceived lack of U.S. commitment to the region, uh, but also because they're not going to have Saudi support as well as probably the support of other Gulf monarchies. So that could lead to de-escalation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Israeli airstrikes in Syria. So let's see. So basically now the Syrian conflict's outcome is going to come down to some kind of negotiated settlement between Turkey and Syria. They could fight each other or otherwise confront each other near the beginning. That's kind of the stage we're at now. Uh, but I suspect that Russia, like I was talking about before, will probably step in and there will be some kind of negotiated settlement. Turkey, Russia, and the Syrian government all have a common interest vis-a-vis -vis the Kurds. And uh, a negotiated settlement with that would deal with that issue and could lead to eventual end of the conflict, which I suspect all parties involved are pretty tired of at this point. So this could be the, finally, this could be the beginning of the end of the Syrian civil war here which is good news for the people of Syria. So it's not all bad in that regard. It's not great for the Kurds, certainly not the end they wanted, but uh, at least the region will have some peace uh, and can start reconstructing and rebuilding. And it's worth mentioning here that uh, while the Trump administration has um, done this in a rather haphazard way, it's not entirely a bad strategic move because as we've talked about before, the Kurds are the weakest political actor in the Middle East, uh, at least the weakest major political actor. And if you have to choose between an alliance with the Kurds and an alliance with Turkey, which again is the most powerful actor in the region, 
Turkey is not a bad choice. And the principal adjutant in the relation between Turkey, relations between Turkey and the U.S. had been that support for the Kurds. So strategically, um, cold, hard calculus here, it's not really a bad move in the grand scheme of things to try to align with Turkey and get back on their good side. And politically speaking, broad parts of the American public are not that invested in the Middle East, don't like the idea of the U.S. fighting in conflicts, and pulling out, not necessarily unpopular. Um, the fact that it was done to the detriment of the Kurds, that's really more the crux of the criticism at this point. But there is general support for getting out of the Middle East and Middle Eastern conflicts. So politically and strategically, it does make some sense. Yeah, well, that's the the cold hard math of it but what about the symbolism and the emotion dude symbolically and emotionally the move was by the trump administration was what you could call hot garbage <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty pretty shit in a lot of ways and that kind of brings me to my final notes here on this and we can kind of move on I've, I've actually been on this for a while now um, but to kind of wrap this up uh, the suddenness and lack of consultation. Really, if you want to do a big diplomatic and strategic move like this, you should have lots of consultation with your institutions uh, that are relevant to it, like the Department of Defense, the Department of State. Um, you should have some interagency consultation so that everybody involved can kind of exchange ideas, interests, etc. And then you have your major advisors all consult with them, and then they give you some kind of package of options that you can choose from to implement your preferred policy. It would seem that none of that happened here. It seems like it really was kind of an impetuous, impulsive decision by Donald Trump following a phone call with Recep Erdogan, which is bad governance, just period. You can't really rationalize your way out of that. Um, and it just, the fact that that's the way it was done is just symbolic of the administration's lack of planning and impulsive nature. It's not great bureaucratically and administratively to govern like that. Um, another note, the Trump administration gave ambiguous signals about how it re would respond to the initial uh, threatened Turkish invasion. Um, so what that means is that uh, when the Turks actually did something and the Trump administration caved in, that was a blow against uh, the credibility of U.S. commitments in the region, which were already under question because of the whole Saudi uh, oil refinery attack. So nominally, the U.S. had a commitment to the Kurds, and then when the Turks threatened an invasion and then carried it out, no retaliation. So that brings into question even further U.S. commitments in the region, which again, didn't have to happen. You didn't have to do it like that. You could have easily withdrawn from the region in a way that did not bring into question credibil the credibility of U.S. commitments. You could have made an agreement with Turkey beforehand and uh, reached an agreement by which U.S. forces could withdraw and be replaced by Turks or some other, just anything, any kind of arrangement that doesn't involve uh, a U.S. red line being crossed and then just arbitrarily not being enforced. So that's also not great. So at this point, <laughs> you know, it could get, e get even worse from here. It could be that the U.S. actually ends up with the worst of both worlds. Um, Obviously, the U.S. has lost leverage on the ground in Syria, but like I was saying, that could be the grounds for a recovery in relations between the U.S. and Turkish government, but Congress has gone out of its way to implement sanctions as a condition, um, 
conditioned on, the removal of which are conditioned on some kind of agreement between Turks and Kurds. And if those sanctions stay in place then, and the Trump administration probably doesn't have a lot of ability to do anything about them, that could stain relations between Turkey and the U.S. such that the U.S. does not get the benefit of improved relations with Turkey. Uh, so in that sense, the whole thing could just end up in a net negative for the U.S. any which way. Now, again, that didn't have to happen like that. If the Trump administration had consulted with Republican allies in Congress, there could have been some negotiation there about what the United States was going to do, the path forward, and maybe the Republican Party could have dissuaded him from doing it the way he did it, could have done it another way, or maybe they could have at least covered for him. Um, as was, none of that happened, and now he's on everybody's shit list, including people who are nominally on his side. Again, the lack of forward planning here is apparent. It's just not great. So this general lack of administrative capacity and this just general lack of ability to govern, which has become almost endemic at this point, the past two weeks have easily been the worst of the administration thus far. There's been a lot of things that the administration has done over the past couple years, but between this and the Ukraine thing, it's really turning into a clown show. It's, and I'm not saying that because I'm super critical of the Trump administration's ideology or politics, its conservatism, etc. I don't have a problem with that. The problem here is just pure administrative capacity. They do not have the ability to govern well. And that cannot be argued at this point. The past two weeks have really made that painfully apparent. Well, I think the main problem here just on a like fundamental mechanical level is the difference between making a snap call and taking some time to think about your next move because the impulse decision has the advantage of it's immediate but you also fail to account for a lot of factors and you would basically avoid making a snap call whenever you can if you have time to consult with experts and think about the ramifications of a decision and all that kind of stuff, you should. And if you look at it from the like human psychology level, that's one of the luxuries that stuff like agriculture and technology has afforded us is we don't have to always make snap calls to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. We can think about the best of all possible choices and we can even go so far as to do some math about what we project to happen. So if you've got something like one of the largest and most powerful governments in the world making snap calls when they can make measured and precise decisions that involve deliberation and like referencing of experts and things like that, then that's a pretty big issue. Yeah, it is. Well, you know, all the more so when as a powerful large country, whatever the United States does or even doesn't do creates waves. You know, action and inaction alike for the United States uh, causes significant repercussions, you know, in any number of different ways and parts of the world. So it's all the more important then to try to take a measured approach, to try to take into consideration uh, all possible repercussions and to try to predict those repercussions as much as possible. Uh, hence the need for consultation beforehand, which again, does not seem to have happened here. Yeah, and that's so just, uh, like you're saying, it's not necessarily a political assessment of, I don't like this administration's politics. It's more of a 
strategic criticism of, I don't like the way that they're arriving at their decisions, but the information that's available. Yeah, that's, that's the crux of it. You know, politically, you could have a whole debate about the administration, you know, their politics. I don't get into that. You know, I'm not your mother. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. That's not our purpose here. This criticism here is just about uh, technique. It's about approach to governance. It's more of a technical critique. You know, whatever they believe, whatever the motivation for what they're doing, the way they're doing it is subbar, to put it mildly. And, you know, before you could have made that criticism, but there was rationalizations behind it. You could say that they were skirting the law, that he was shooting from the hip in a way that was more about political popularity than about policy. And you could kind of give him a pass for that. So fine. But this, at this point, you just can't argue against it. I don't think you can substantively say that the Trump administration is... Uh, playing some kind of 4D chess strategic master plan here. This really does seem to be a very impulsive administration at this point. And I'm open to criticism on that. I'm happy to be wrong on that. By all means, tell me how I'm wrong. You know, I'm to you know, I'm wrong so often about so many things. So, you know, I'm more than willing to admit that I could be wrong on that. And I'm I welcome criticism on that. But at this point, this is my reading. And it's just not positive. You know, just from what I've seen the past two weeks, it's the administration has not been looking too hot. So as a final note here, I would point out that three years, what, it's been roughly, yeah, three years now of the Trump administration. So at this point, he's looking more and more like an American Boris Yeltsin. And I don't know how familiar people in chat are with Boris Yeltsin, since probably the chat is disproportionately younger. But Boris Yeltsin was the president of Russia in the 1990s. And he was very popular when he first got into politics. Uh, he actually, and this may not be known to even people who are more familiar with him, he actually ran as a populist in the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union, Union opened up its political system. I think that was uh, glasnost, openness. And he basically ran a, on a platform of Russian nationalism. And, you know, if there are any Russians listening to this, please keep me honest on this. This is, this is what I'm remembering, but if there's anything I'm getting wrong, please correct me. But uh, from what I remember, he ran as a Russian nationalist. And uh, later on, that was, well, that was the crux of his popularity. But later on, he became more and more of a patronage politician. It wasn't so much about the ideas or Russian nationalism. It was more about getting his guys in office. And he governed in a sort of borderline mafioso sort of way. So corruption became very much the order of the day in the administration. People in the West, that is to say governments in the West, were willing to tolerate him uh, because they saw him as better than the alternative. Keep in mind, uh, the Cold War had only just ended. You know, The Soviet Union collapsed, but there was a very real fear in the West that communists could return and political and economic conditions in Russia in the 1990s, as everybody knows, were pretty poor. So the fear of a communist return to power was credible. It was entirely possible that the public, uh, Russian public and Russian voters would uh, grow disenchanted with the piss poor status quo at the time and try to go back to something that they knew and almost did, I think once. Uh, I think Yeltsin ended up kind of recovering in the polls in time to win the presidency again in the uh, 
mid-90s election that he ran in, but there was a while there when it was looking a little shaky. So <clears throat> Yeltsin, uh, again, a popular politician, ran on a populist platform. That was kind of how he got into it, but eventually became known for corruption and towards the end of it, his administration became known for ineffectiveness. Uh, you know, there was a lot of things wrong with Russia in the 90s, and it seemed like the Yeltsin administration was categorically unable to really address them uh, in any substantive way. And eventually Yeltsin lost popularity and kind of made way for Vladimir Putin, <laughs> whom we all now know and love. <laughs> he was uh, not well known when he was first appointed, but you know, I won't get into the history of Vladimir Putin. That's a whole other conversation, but you know, Boris Yeltsin is just known for being in it was known in the end for being unable to kind of save Russia and run a functioning government. Now I'm not saying that Donald Trump is as bad as Boris Yeltsin and his inability to kind of function uh, as president of the United States and to run a functioning administration. Um, but the trajectory is similar at this point. He's not fully Boris Yeltsin of the United States yet, but he's getting there. There really needs to be some kind of turnaround there in terms of the way that the administration is run and functions in order to kind of avoid that fate. But right now, that kind of seems to be a, a growing similarity there. So that was our first topic. <laughs> nice. And we knocked out a the Syria discussion. It does uh, ring a similar tone to whenever people ask stuff like, well, what about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and stuff? And a lot of these current issues have a very, very long history associated with them. And that context helps inform people's understanding pretty well. So appreciate you going back in time a little bit and giving us more of the big picture. Well, as best I can, my memory isn't great. Hopefully Chad can kind of help me with that, but I, I try my best. Yeah, and it is one of the golden truths of the internet in these days, where if you say anything either in favor of or against Trump, there's going to be someone who poops their pants, so. Oh yeah, I don't doubt it. Yeah, we're very consistent with that no matter where you go. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. So the, uh, I think we have a couple questions, but another uh, topic that has been kind of jumping out in terms of the news, I think, what was it? I had a few of them prepped and then we got into some wonderful weeds of different <laughs> things that have been going on. I think Canadian elections are coming up. Uh, Trudeau, I've seen some interesting developments of his character because from what I could tell from my uh, stupid American perspective is that it seemed like he was someone who people were really excited about and recently there have been a lot of people saying that they really dislike him and how he's managed the government so do you have any sense of why that might be the case? I haven't been following Canada's election too closely I just kind of assume that the uh, Trudeau and his people will get back in because Canada's relatively left progressive in its politics. And Trudeau is sort of like the spirit animal of all progressives at this point, <laughs> so to speak. So, but yeah, there has been a lot of criticism of him lately. 
Part of it is just the fact that he's an incumbent. You know, once you've been in power for a couple years, you invariably do stupid shit of one sort or another. So that's weighing on him. Um, the blackface thing didn't help. Did you hear about that? No. Lots of blackface for this guy. He's gotten in trouble for it, I think, two times before and had to apologize. And then it happened again during this election cycle. Just old pictures of him in blackface. Which is a little awkward for a guy who, again, is supposed to be the spirit animal of progressive. So he's been trying to kind of explain that away. I think he's done okay with it. He's pretty good at apologizing, which I guess sounds stupid, <laughs> but that is kind of his bag, you know, kind of understanding, empathy, etc. So, you know, he's, he's done that pretty well. So I think he's more or less been forgiven for that. I think his bigger problem, though, is with the... Uh, political right and center right there's a lot of criticism of him for being too progressive uh from people on the right you know they kind of see him pushing too many things a little too hard you know just individual issues of one sort or another that are sort of close to the hearts of the progressive movement in canada but that are just heavily disliked by uh the political right you know for obvious reasons so i think specific examples of uh other issues beyond just social issues of the left or right in canada uh, the Western provinces are upset with the Trudeau government because he's kind of moved against uh, uh, the oil industry. He hasn't really been as gung-ho for promoting pipelines uh, that have been proposed and whatnot. And he's also been a little too gung-ho from their perspective about introducing uh, environmental controls that are detrimental to the uh, health of the oil industry in now places like Alberta and I guess Saskatchewan, but I think it's mostly Alberta that is particularly concerned with that. So they're very upset with him for that reason. Um, in Quebec and Ontario, I think there's more of a backlash to some of the social issue stuff. I don't think it's as, as much in Ontario, but I do know that um, how the brother of Doug Ford is, I think, the premier or governor of Ontario right now. And he was very much, I think both Ford brothers are sort of very much populist figures. So that's kind of suggests a, a trend or at least a thread in uh, Ontario politics that doesn't like some of the progressive type stuff that the Trudeau administration has been doing. And there's been something similar in Quebec, actually. Now, please correct me on that. Is that Quebec or Quebec? I've heard Quebec. Okay. I think Quebec is the French pronunciation. Quebec was okay. that kind of... Uh... So both of them are correct, depending on which one you're trying to do. Okay. Thank you. I don't want to get in trouble with our Quebecois. Well, either, either the Quebecois are going to love you for the way you pronounce it, or other people are going to be like, what? So, <laughs> Fair enough. True enough. Um, yeah, so there's something similar happening in Quebec. You know, in Quebec, they have more of a, unsurprisingly, they have more of a French notion of what constitutes uh, identity, you know, what, what should constitute French identity. Uh, so, they're a little more, I don't want to say intolerant, but they're a little less uh, forgiving of deviations from the norm. Specifically, it comes down to religious symbolism. You know, in French political culture, not only in Quebec, but in France, there's this long-running tension uh, between religious conservatives and secular Republicans. And that's, that's been a common theme there in France for just generations now, going all the way back to the French Revolution. And uh, something similar kind of has been playing out in Quebec where there's some tension over uh, the rights of, I think, Muslims. Wait a minute. Yes, Muslims. Okay. 
I've been mispronouncing it Muslims. I'm trying to be right on that. Um, there's been tension over whether Muslims have the right to wear, you know, headscarves and whatnot, you know, religious symbol, uh, religiously symbolic clothing, basically. And uh, some of the Quebecois nationalists have been opposed to that because they, because they tend to trend a little more towards the secular Republican uh, side of the French political spectrum. So there's been some tension about uh, Quebecois passing some rules against uh, the expression of religious symbol, religiously symbolic clothing in public institutions of one sort or another. And so I think that even came up during the um, French debate, which is a thing. Uh, the presidential can candidates have a debate in French uh, in Canada. And so there was some talk, some questions about whether the national government should intercede in Quebec to protect the rights of these people uh, whom some argue are being uh, violated by some of these provisions that are proposed in Quebec. So those are all sort of areas and people who are uh, critical of Trudeau and the way he's been doing things. But he also has a fair amount of support. You know, obviously in the urban areas, you know, there's a lot of uh, leftist support and progressive support for Trudeau and his progressive style of governance. And there's also a fair amount of support in British Columbia, I think, which tends to be more political left, uh, to be on the political left than other Western provinces. You know, generally the Western provinces in Canada are arch conservative, uh, but in British Columbia, they've got more of that Pacific Northwest progressivism going on. So they tend to vote more uh, for the, I think labor, I think it is labor up in Canada, isn't it? That's what it would be in the UK anyway. So those are, that's basically all I can remember about Canada's president, well, not president, but Canada's general election. I haven't, again, I haven't been following it too closely, so I don't know, really know individual issues, you know, and so I would, I would humbly ask if we uh, have any Canadian listeners that they might post uh, some of the major issues in the election. You know, I would appreciate that since that would give me like a quick and dirty window into the election. You guys would know better than anybody the big talking points right now. So if somebody could provide that, I think uh, I would appreciate it, certainly. But you know, it would be beneficial for those of us not from Canada uh, in general who aren't really familiar with politics up there. Oh, I did remember the other issue. I think there was supposed to be... The G7 hosted at Trump's resort, and that was changed. I think someone was saying that for legal reasons, maybe that would benefit him personally and financially if that was hosted there. Yeah, I think so. But I hadn't thought it was an issue. No, I, not really an issue, more of a, a side note. Fortunately, oh. not something that takes as much unpacking as the, the Syria conflict <laughs> Or the yeah. question. Yeah, the G seven summits are a little straight, more straightforward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not. What are those? There was some for just a general review. What were the what? G seven summits. What are they? What do they do? Why should we care? So the G seven summit. So G seven stands for Group of Seven, and uh, it's a group of the seven most developed economies in the world. You know, the countries, uh, the seven countries with the most developed economies in the world, and they all meet in order to basically just discuss issues of common interest. Um, so whatever major issues that are kind of plaguing uh, relations between them, or maybe issues that are that one country wants the assistance of another country with, all of that gets discussed. 
uh, it's not really an economic meeting per se. You know, all of the most developed economies are basically European and North American. And so it's basically just an excuse because they're already those all those countries are already allied militarily, strategically. They generally have strong economic ties. Uh, so it's more of an excuse for allies to meet up and discuss problems of common concern. You know, it's not just economic issues they discuss, but strategic issues and just anything else. Uh, it's not really meant to be a venue for the discussion of any one particular issue. It really is just sort of open-ended. And uh, the utility of it is just to create a space where national leaders can negotiate in private with each other directly without having to go through intermediaries, which can be very useful since sometimes intermediaries are unreliable. Sometimes schedules don't overlap. You know, sometimes it's just difficult to negotiate things through official channels. So having that direct conversation at the meeting uh, can be more productive and allow a more frank, direct discussion of issues than would occur otherwise. So it's uh, in general, it's just a intermittent meeting held, I think, a couple times a year that uh, just gives leaders the potential uh, to discuss issues, but is not really intended to discuss any particular issues. Hmm. Yeah, so kind of a kind of a negotiate. Well, it's just sort of a negotiating tool, I guess, an institution to facilitate negotiation. Let's put it like that. Makes sense. It used to be uh, the G8. Well, I mean, it was the G7 for the first couple decades, but then they started letting Russia join the meetings, and it became the G8. Oh, why did they get kicked out? You can probably guess. Crimea? Bingo. Nice. <laughs> Bang on. I guess at one of the meetings they said, we're not happy about this, and if you want to come back to our meetings, you need to stop doing that. That's exactly what they said, actually. They put sanctions on them and kicked them out of the G8. So now it's the G7 again. Oh my goodness. We'll see how long that lasts. Given how stubborn everybody is about the whole Ukraine thing, probably going to be a while. Well, let's see. Did uh, Was there anything else you wanted to hit on? No, nope, I think that was it. Yeah, there's been... There's been a lot of stupid shit happening the past two weeks. Oh, uh, because we didn't have a session last week, there was a massive thing that hit the fan in the gaming scene that has a lot of... Oh, God. <laughs> That's right. You know what it is. <laughs> Everybody knows what it is. Okay, so we're just going to get it out. I did a little just like personal thoughts on it based on what I had heard, but we can get some Agent Smith pizzazz with this as well. Uh there was a Hearthstone player who, in Taiwan, in a Hearthstone tournament, he won. And during the winner's interview, he stated his like support of the Hong Kong protesters. Like very visibly, he even had the kind of uh, gas mask kind of thing that a lot of the protesters wear out in the streets, so they're not going to be as messed up by the tear gas and what have you. And his prize money was stripped. And he was banned for a year, and both of the interviewers were also banned. And because the community had such an outcry, uh, Blizzard made a statement and said that he's going to get his prize money and the ban is going to be halved. And uh, this is a really interesting development, I think, that indicates uh, one of the different effects of 
having a global economy is even a game developing company is no longer just we're making games for the people of our country. We're making games for the people of the world. And China has extremely strong opinions about uh, what political statements you can make and also what different aspects you can have in the video games that you make. So some examples are uh, you can't have skeleton kind of creatures that are visible in a game if it's being pushed to China. So there's a, an alternate undead model that's in World of Warcraft that you can actually turn on in your in-game settings because that's how it's pitched to China. But yeah, obviously people have very strong opinions about this ruling and BlizzCon coming up in the end of this month in early November, some people are joking about as protest con there. It's going to be an interesting year in terms of the, <laughs> the overall community vibe, because oftentimes it's very excited. People are looking forward to see what games and things are going to be released. And maybe they're thrilled, maybe they're disappointed, but it's usually about the games. But this one is going to be very much about the politics and the spirit of the company and what the company is trying to do. And, who they're trying to please, because sometimes you have the Western market or just the global market and then the Chinese market are at ends with each other. So that's kind of my basic understanding. What is your uh, understanding? I don't have much to add. That pretty much nails it. You know, in general, to kind of tie it into a sort of broaden the picture, uh, you know, as China's economy has grown, it's become a more tempting target for uh, outside companies uh, as a source of revenue. And because it is such a huge market, that's a huge incentive uh, to try to cater to whatever demands Beijing makes in order to have access to that. And that's created a dilemma for any number of companies and corporations, um, not only in the United States, but you know in the West generally, if not the entire world. So the problem companies face then is... Uh, how much do you want to give in to these various demands by the Chinese government, uh, given that giving into them will alienate people back in the United States uh, or you know whatever other home country you may be, probably Western. So this innate tension has just been building over time as China's market has grown and as the tension between uh, the demands of the Chinese government and the preferences of American and Western consumers have continued to diverge, all the more so since Xi Jinping has come to power and taken a more hardline approach uh, to suppressing dissent in China. And it's basically with this uh, Hearthstone thing, and as well as with the NBA, which is another issue that's been unfolding over the past few weeks, uh, it's come to a head. You know, that's. It's been kind of behind the scenes. It's been there. You know, the public has been vaguely aware of it. Uh, but I don't think it's really been a major issue in most countries uh, until, well, certainly not in the United States until now. You know, here with the Blizzard uh, issue and with the NBA issue, it's really come into the open as something that a lot of common people are becoming aware of. You know, so I think um, for the company involved, it's a, dip of, it's a very difficult, unenviable tightrope to have to walk between these two huge markets that have just diametrically opposed political preferences. You know, you really can't do too much to please one that isn't going to aggravate the other. And given the amount of money that's on the line, uh, you stand to lose a lot for even the most minor of infractions. And I think that's why Blizzard had the rule in the first place uh, not to have, not to allow any 
real political expression uh, in their live casts, uh, you know, and the broadcasts of, you know, these sorts of competitions. It's uh, their way of avoiding the issue from you know, just avoiding the issue completely. You know, we can't, they can't really uh, allow criticism of China without losing access to China, but then they can't forbid criticism of China either without aggravating their American consumers. So uh, the compromise is just to say no politics, you know, no politics, then it's no problem, which is great until somebody does what happened and then puts them in a spot where they have to either punish the person and piss off the American consumers or not punish them and lose access to the market. So, you know, heads they win, heads they lose, <laughs> heads they win, tails they lose. You know, it's just, there's no, there's no way they can really get out of that without getting hurt somehow. So I think what it's really going to come down to, and the NBA is already doing this, I think. Are you familiar with the NBA thing, Nero? Uh, my father vaguely mentioned it because we actually ended up talking about it from the two different angles. Because I was like, hey, did you hear about the thing with Hearthstone and Blizzard and Hong Kong and China? And he was like, no, but I did hear about this NBA thing. So it's kind of funny <laughs> that they're both hitting at the same time. And in a way that, uh, like you're saying, it sort of indicates a critical mass of an issue that had been underlying for a long time. It's like there are different views and opinions here, oftentimes, like you said, diametrically opposed. Uh, hmm. When is it going to hit the fan? Because it's kind of been brewing for a while. And yeah, now we have a, a big major issue that uh, needs to be figured out because as a company, you can't really throw your lot with two different uh, groups that oppose each other. You're going to have to pick a side. And just from my like personal, emotional kind of angle that isn't really like super uh, backed by a bunch of deep knowledge, as an American, you kind of want to throw your lot with the people who are fighting for their freedom, kind of similar to the Kurds. Even if you don't know a whole ton about the situation, if you've got one very large, powerful government that tries to have stuff like thought control of its people, that resonates as pretty gross, I think, a lot of the time. So if there's a group that's going to be opposed to that, the natural response is going to be to pick the side of the oppressed rather than the oppressor, if you're going to break it down in that sense. Oh, yeah. So we do have like a mixture of opinion. I think the vast majority of the people who uh, I've heard from and talked with in the game communities I'm involved with and on Twitch are like more throwing in with uh, Hong Kong in that sense. A lot of people can't talk. Uh, if you are like on payroll with companies and things like that, it oh, yeah. it's like your career is on the line. So there's that. And then there are also some people who are going as far as canceling all of their subscriptions to the Blizzard games and not playing any more Blizzard products. So there's that full range of opinion there. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of pushback. And, you know, if you're the company or the NBA, then uh, that's actually useful. It's actually useful to have a lot of this pushback because that gives you more leverage when you're negotiating with the Chinese government. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people in the U.S. would prefer they just cut ties, you know, just mark a clear line in the sand and say, okay, we're not going to censor ourselves um, in order to please uh, this government in order to maintain access to this market. That's probably not going to happen. You know, the Chinese government knows 
uh, that it has a lot of leverage, but it also knows that it puts companies in an impossible position if it demands of them that they adhere to certain self-censorship provisions as a condition of entering the market. And because the Chinese government does to a degree want uh, Blizzard and the NBA uh, to operate in China, maybe not so much because they just really love video games and basketball, but just as a precedent uh, to set uh, to set as an example to other companies that they can operate in China, but here's what you have to do. Uh, they want to make it clear that their standard is not impossibly high. Um, the Chinese government could just lock out Western companies and say, no, you have to do all of these things, meet all of these preconditions regarding self-censorship, and if you don't meet them, you can't come in. But that's pretty self-defeating. Uh, that's just less money coming into China at that point. It requires you know, censorship. It aggravates consumers overseas. It's just, it's not a very finessed way of dealing with the problem. So I think the Chinese government will negotiate with these companies. And the NBA has already said that they're going to meet with the Chinese government. And I suspect that the crux of the negotiation is going to be that both sides want continued interaction. You know, the NBA wants to be in China. China wants the NBA there, etc. And uh, And the company is going to make the point that they're willing to meet them halfway, but they can't do full self-censorship because they're coming under so much pressure from American companies. Uh, sorry, from American consumers. And the louder those protests are from American consumers and the greater the pressure they can bring to bear, the more credible that argument that the NBA and Blizzard are going to be able to bring to that negotiation and the more the Chinese government is going to have to back off and give them more room to maneuver. So in that sense, the protests and the pushback is actually very useful in that regard and could serve uh, to influence the Chinese government in allowing a little more leeway, not a whole lot more, but more leeway to Western companies to operate in China and to avoid these sort of noxious self-censorship measures that are seriously unpopular in the West, uh, for sure. Now, what the ultimate outcome of that is, I don't know. It's not clear what that negotiation would look like. Um, it could be that there are hardliners in the Chinese government that are not willing to give ground. I don't think that's the case, but it could be. Uh, in that case, you know, there really could be a break. Uh, but I suspect there is going to be some kind of meeting in the middle somewhere. Uh, there's not, you know, with the NBA, if they're broadcasting a live NBA game, obviously there's going to be people in the crowd who are going to want to flaunt pro-Hong Kong uh, merchandise, you know, symbols and whatnot. I think that already happened at a preseason game recently. Uh, so there's kind of limits to what the NBA could do short of actually, you know, I don't think the NBA would ever just tell fans you can't show, you can't wear pro-Hong Kong paraphernalia at a game because it might show up in a broadcast in China. That's a bridge too far. To the NBA's credit, they've already said that they're not going to fire the coach who issued the tweet in question that offended uh, China and the Chinese government. And they've even gone so far as to say they're not even going to discipline them and that they stand by freedom of speech. So that's a pretty clear line in the sand there for the NBA. But again, I don't think that means that they're going to give up on China. They're clearly going to have some kind of negotiated settlement there that they're going to push for that involves continued engagement with China and the Chinese market. And probably there will be some self-censorship measures that the NBA engages in. There will probably be some... Uh, internal memo that says we can't tell you not to talk about China and Hong Kong but we would strongly discourage you uh, from doing so. <laughs> but we're going to get as close as we can to doing that. 
Yeah, if you really want to, if you really have a strong opinion about it and you want to tweet it out to the world, that's fine. But we can't guarantee the consequences. We won't fire you, we won't discipline you, but there's probably going to be a commercial fallout for that. So we would kindly, politely ask you to refrain from doing that, at least doing it too loudly. Absolutely. Now they'll say that, but they'll turn around and tell the Chinese government, hey, look, we can't tell these people what to think. We can't stop them from expressing their opinion. We have freedom of speech in the United States. You need to be more tolerant of that and recognize that there are limitations to what we can do. If you want us to censor stuff in China, if you want us to censor broadcasts in China, if you want us to limit the exposure of certain pro Hong Kong players or whatever in China, we can do that. But we're not going to do it in the United States. It's just not feasible. It's not practical. So you need to kind of give us some preconditions for how we'll work in China. We can meet those, but you have to be flexible. I suspect China will be willing to kind of meet those terms. So I kind of think that that's going to set the pattern then for similar, for US companies and other Western companies that are in similar circumstances in the future. So this is probably going to kind of be the precedent for that. That's what I already said. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see. I, did you read the Blizzard statement on it? The official no, I didn't. Made. Uh, so the president of the company, uh, Alan Brack, he did a spiel. Very, very like nicey, nice legalese. Uh, they did admit that they acted too fast on it, but they had a a Blizzard slogan they used that personally I took a lot of issue with that I thought was really stupid to say. They said every voice matters, something about like that, and they were echoing it a whole bunch of times in it across multiple statements. And the difference here, uh, the reason that I dislike it uh, for them to use is every voice matters, but certain voices uh, have action taken against them for being voiced and others don't because we don't have the like equal exchange of, oh, well, this this person said something against China and they got banned. This person said something for China and they also got banned. So there's the the even exchange of everyone gets a ban and every voice matters and everyone's getting offended and everyone's getting punished. It's like, there's very clearly one side of enforcement here of you can't say stuff against China. If you say stuff for China, like like that's freedom of speech in the West. So you're allowed to express your political opinions. If you dislike Trump, you're free to say that, uh, those kind of things. So it's, it feels very unfair, I think, to the community right now. Mm -hmm. And please, Please don't say every voice matters if you're going to do this. It's just stupid. <laughs> well, what's the old saying? Freedom for freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences. That's true. Corporations can use that too. <laughs> That's true. They did break a rule. To be fair, a rule was broken. So on that side, you're not supposed to talk about political stuff. The guy took a stand and talked about some political stuff, but because of the nature of it, it felt like a very un-American thing for a company to do. Oh, yeah. Well, it was. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they can weasel their way out of it. It was not, it did not look good, <laughs> suffice to say. You know, given, I mean, all the more so given tensions with China right now, because it's not just self-censorship that's uh, kind of the problem that U.S. corporations have. You know, other U.S. corporations that don't have a media presence, you know, that don't have some kind of, uh, broadcasting or media aspect to their operations, even they 
uh, have problems with the Chinese government because of the whole, you know, technology transfers, local content requirements, uh, discrimination, etc. within the Chinese market. You know, that's sort of the crux of the current Sino-American trade war. So that ties into it too. You know, what what constitutes fair trade and what constitutes fair influence? Uh, the use of, that is to say, economic influence to influence the way foreign companies operate. Uh, China's obviously grown into a significant amount of economic influence over the past couple decades. Everybody has been very curious to see how they use that. Um, they haven't really been able to do too much as far as influencing the United States, but now we've kind of reached a point where it's become apparent that they can. And so now we're probably going to enter a stage similar to where Australia is right now. Uh, Australia has had a running political debate within its political discourse for a couple of years now, I guess, uh, owing to allegations regarding the use of Chinese political and economic influence within Australia to influence Australian politics. And that ties into the operation of certain Chinese institutions in Australia, you know, Confucius Institutes, uh, allegations about bribery, about connections between Australian politicians and Chinese institutions. So this has been a thing in Australia for a while now. This is a very real debate there. The United States is kind of entering that point where there is a, going to be a real conversation about uh, what should be done, if anything, about U.S. corporations. Uh, I don't want to say kowtowing to the Chinese government per se, but uh, adhering to Chinese, the Chinese government's preferences vis-a-vis -vis certain issues as a quid pro quo for access to China's markets. And that could be something that the government gets involved in in the future, or maybe it's just something that consumers uh, use the sort of power of their wallet uh, to try to punish companies for. But it's going to be a serious issue going forward because China's market is slowing, its growth is slowing, but it's still growing pretty significantly. 6% plus a year is still quite a bit. So they're definitely bringing a lot of money to the table and that's going to be sorely tempting for a lot of US companies as well as others. So this is something to kind of keep an eye on. This is going to be a major issue. Uh, right now it's sort of in its nascent embryonic stage, but it's going to grow. You know, I don't think it's going to go away at any point because I don't see Sino-American economic tensions writ large going anywhere anytime soon unless the Trump administration pulls a rabbit out of its ass and actually manages to negotiate a trade agreement. That seems a little unlikely uh, at this point, but we'll see. I'm open to being wrong on that. But even if they do, there's going to be a lot of residual tension there, and that still would not resolve the issue of the Chinese government using economic influence to influence, uh, well, to try to impose self-censorship provisions amongst companies trying to operate there. So that's going to be a running sore point in any case. Anyway, I'm rambling now, so I'll let that go. Yeah, TLDR, stay out of our sports, okay? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. And the NBA has been the most successful of the American sports operating in China. They've easily done the best. I'm told that American football is gaining some traction, which surprises me. But apparently there's some of that there, and not so much baseball and of course nobody likes ice hockey <laughs> the one sport i like is of course the one that's the least the least popular not only in texas but also china but uh basketball yeah that's that's gotten a lot of following in china they've done really well over there
Yep, LeBron James getting a lot of flack for okay. side. Well, I don't know that he took a side because I think the comments that he made were basically to the effect of not every issue needs to be everybody's business. Something to that effect. That's picking a side. <laughs> well, basically, it's it's sort of uh, kind of declaring neutrality that it doesn't that you don't need to pick a side. I think that was more the crux of his point there that you know, you don't have to get involved in every issue. But of course that agitated a number of people, especially people in the African-American community who advocate for civil rights and reforms and whatnot, because of course uh, a lot of the African-American uh, civil rights advocates over the past hundred years have tried very hard uh, to try to build sympathy for their movement by connecting it, analogizing it to other similar movements. And so then for LeBron James, then for LeBron James to come out and basically poo-poo that notion to kind of uh, try to try to suggest that there should be separation there between uh, the struggle in Hong Kong and any similar such struggles in other countries, including the United States, that's a bit disappointing for them, to put it mildly. So I think that struck a nerve then in the United States because that kind of hit on a sensitive spot in American politics. So LeBron James is getting a lot of uh, feedback <laughs> for that. Take some constructive criticism. <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. But has anything major changed in Hong Kong recently? I don't want to say it's changed. I want to say it's on trend. And the trend is sort of the same as what we were talking about last time. I kind of predicted that um, the the Hong Kong protests would get worse and more violent because the protesters are going to lose the support of the business community and the government in turn gaining the support of the community is probably going to start cracking down harder and that seems to be the trend. The protesters have been getting more violent, there have been more uh, Molotov cocktail attacks, there have been more co physical confrontations with the police and the police in turn have been getting more confrontational and physically violent in their dealings with the protests. So I don't think we're on track for a negotiated settlement at this point. You know, the extradition bill is off the table. That was the big thing for the protesters initially. And that was something that the government was willing to give up, even if they said that they weren't at the beginning. But the broader reforms that the protesters are asking for, I think, are a bridge too far at this point, because that's a red line for not only the Chinese government, but also the Hong Kong government. And so I don't think that they're going to really be willing to give way on that. If they did, I would be surprised. So I think both sides are have signaled pretty strongly that they're both willing to go to the mat for this. And I don't think that either side is going to be willing to give in. So I think they really will then go to the mat. And well, basically, it's like a game of chicken. I'm sure you're familiar with that, Noro. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those of you non-native English speakers who may not know what that is, um, a game of chicken is sort of an old game that used to be played by teenagers I think in the United States in which um, two drivers and two different cars drive directly at each other at top speed and then whoever veers away first is the loser the proverbial chicken and if that sounds like an intensely stupid game to play it is <laughs> but it was something that was done at one point apparently and it has become an analogy for any number of political contests 
uh, between political actors on a collision course, but who are not willing to aver. So that seems to be what's happening in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong government and the protesters seem to be playing a game of chicken. And it seems like neither side is willing to divert, and it seems like then a collision is likely. And what that collision looks like is sort of the open question at this point. Um, maybe it results in some mild violence going for. Maybe it doesn't escalate too much further from this point, and that there is some kind of de-escalation. Maybe the protesters lose steam and public support, or maybe the government faces enough pressure that they're willing to give some sort of symbolic concessions that result in de-escalation. Or maybe we just go whole hog and whole hog and the Chinese government floods the city with police and military police and that shuts it down the hard way. It's anybody's guess at this point. But I don't think it's going to be pretty, whatever the outcome is at this point. It just doesn't seem like there's enough flexibility by either side at this juncture to really facilitate a peaceful negotiated settlement, which would be ideal. I can't really blame the protesters because there is a sense among them that this is sort of a last chance. You know, once 2047 hits, China has no real treaty obligation to maintain Hong Kong's independent rule of law political institutions. And that, along with various signals over the past 20 years by the Chinese government and their proxies in the Hong Kong government, that they're not really interested in preserving those institutions kind of gives the Hong Kong protesters pretty good reason to expect that they can face, that they're going to face a significant effort by the Chinese government to mitigate their institutions and that they really need to fight hard as soon as possible, as much as possible to ensure that that doesn't come to pass. Or at least to make it as difficult and grinding a process as possible to make sure that uh, if the Chinese government does want to do it, that they face a lot of deterrent. So certainly a lot of deterrent on the table at this point, but I'm skeptical that it's going to be enough. And uh, I'm concerned that maybe it's just going to give the Chinese government a free, an excuse, if you like, to just, ex to, uh, I wanted to say rapidize, that's not even a word, expedite, to expedite the kinds of changes that they're trying to enforce in Hong Kong. So those are just some errant thoughts. Um, not a whole lot changing there, just sort of more confrontation and slow but steady escalation. All right. Well, best of luck to everyone. With a game of chicken, I think it kind of goes without saying, but we'll say it anyway, that usually both sides would prefer a peaceful resolution and a cessation of the stupidity. So in this case of protest, they feel like they probably don't have other means of stating like what they want and really trying to push for that. Because mm -hmm. if the if the government has its own set of interests that are like very strong and very much opposed to what the people want, then you're not going to like go to the polls and vote your way to getting some change. Yeah. Either you're going to need some form of nonviolent protest or some violent protest to really get their attention and force someone to make a move. It's unfortunate, but that kind of is the case. When democracy fails, then people are going to escalate and try other means. A lot of stuff with the civil rights movement in the United States 
involved nonviolent protests, but it still involved breaking rules to get attention and force people to listen to what you had to say. So stuff like blocking streets and roads and things like that that are inconveniencing the public in general, but in a way where they felt like we're not being represented and this is a way that we can represent our numbers and our intentions and what we want changed. So it's uh, I haven't followed closely the tactics involved, but that's likely a big part of it. There are pictures that are posted of like tons of people flooding the streets, which is kind of that general theme. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah that's they've managed to get a lot of turnout. They've got public support so far, but it's just not really clear where they can go from here. Mm-hmm beyond just making beyond just presenting as much deterrence as popular as possible to try to discourage the government from doing what they've been doing but at, at this point it's more of a high risk high reward strategy than anything that looks particularly effective but again you know kind of like what you say when you don't have any other options you go with what you got and this is what they've got Well, the theme for tonight seems to be total shit shows. Yeah. So would you like to talk then about Brexit? Well, that is the uh, <laughs> the shit show of the past several years, isn't it? Yeah, you could say the trademark shit show yeah. of the decade. Let's dive into some Brexit, but it's lovely right now. It's gotten interesting. You know, they actually have made some progress. Uh, There was a new deal, a new Brexit deal struck between the British government and the European Union. That's a good thing. That's what they were hung up on. It's pretty similar to Theresa May's deal. Uh, One of the key differences is that the backstop deal has been removed. I've explained this a couple times on here, and I don't think any of them have been particularly comprehensible. (laughs) So I'll spare the listener explaining the backstop, but basically it had to do with the Irish border and how to manage that. There's a very strong demand by the Irish, as well as a lot of people in Northern Ireland, which is a part of the UK, to ensure that there are no border checks or customs checks of any kind between the Republic of Ireland and the British territory of Northern Ireland. So in order to facilitate that, this new Brexit deal Uh, has a few new key features. For one, it's not a conditional uh, deal like the original Theresa May backstop was. This is going to be implemented if passed uh, once the two-year transition post-Brexit passes. So once that two-year transition is that this agreement will be implemented unless they change it during the two-year transition, which is probably what's going to happen anyway, but that's a whole other conversation. So it's going to happen. Uh, Northern I- Part of the deal is that Northern Ireland will be bound to European Union regulations, which basically means that, the Northern, that Northern Ireland is going to stay in the Eurozone. It will technically be a part of the European Union. The rest of the UK will not, uh, but the Northern, I- the Northern Irish territory will be. So in order to facilitate that, they had to implement a lot of weird measures so that uh, border checks uh, would happen. You know, you can't have uh, Northern Ireland be in the European Union de facto, but then not have border checks between Northern Ireland and the UK, because then people could just smuggle stuff in from the UK uh, 
through Northern Ireland into the European Union territory through Ireland, which would in effect completely obliterate the customs union, the common customs union in the European Union. That of course was a red line for the European Union negotiators. So to get around that, there's going to be a de facto customs union, customs regime, if you like, between the UK, well, I should say Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And so that's going to involve technology. They want to make that as seamless as possible because a lot of uh, British nationalists were dead set opposed to having any kind of internal customs regime like that. Um, they see it as a front to sovereignty uh, and in turn, just oppose it for that reason, basically. So there's going to be a lot of technological measures to make it as, as seamless as possible. There's going to be spot inspections, uh, etc. cetera. I, I won't get too much into the details of that. I didn't read too much into that. Um, a lot of it has been proposals that were, have been made over the past couple of years. Uh, so they've basically aggregated all of that technological stuff that they were proposing and have implemented it here. <clears throat> uh, the UK is going to be trusted by the European Union to enforce that. That was one of the criticisms in previous incarnations of the of this deal. You know, proposals like this have been made before, and the European Union was a little wary of trusting the British government to enforce what was in effect a European Union customs uh, regime within its own borders. Understandably so, but at this point they've gotten over that it seems, and they're going to go along with it. So let's see, uh, it's a nice deal because it assuages British nationalists who don't want an internal customs regime. Um, technically there is, so they didn't really get their way, but they've tried to make it as seamless as possible. But it also assuages uh, the European Union in that it makes sure that there's no hard border uh, on the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So everybody gets something, it's a nice compromise. It's a bullshit compromise because really the British had to give the concession of having the internal uh, customs regime, but they were able to kind of spin it as a mutual compromise, so everybody's happy for that reason. Yay, politics. Uh, one of the other aspects of the deal here regarding the internal customs union is that importers of, that is to say, people in Northern Ireland who import commercial goods uh, will have to pay customs duties when they bring in those goods uh, from outside Northern Ireland, from the UK, uh, again, Great Britain, I should say, but they will be able to get a rebate on those customs duties if they can prove satisfactorily that those commercial goods are meant for Northern Ireland and not for continued export on to the rest of the European Union. So that's a concession by the European Union because it means that then Northern Ireland is technically part of the UK, basically is the symbolism there. Uh, again, kind of a minor technical point, but it was important, important for the British government uh, to get that. So let's see, personal, personal goods, uh, people who import personal goods into Northern Ireland uh, don't have to pay customs at all. So that kind of gets around that. Uh, that was a nice concession for basically digital trade. If you want to buy something from Amazon, you don't have to worry about paying European Union customs duties on it if you're buying it in Northern Ireland and trying to import it from Great Britain. So uh, the other part of the deal here, the Northern Ireland will get to vote on whether to continue this customs duty arrangement if it's still in place after five years. Um, ideally not. That is to say, ideally, they won't have to vote on it. Hopefully, there will be some new arrangement in place by then. But if this current agreement is still in effect five years after the fact, after the two-year transition ends, there's going to be a vote. 
And if the voters in Northern Ireland accept uh, the, the arrangement, then it'll continue for, I think, another four years is what they said. If they reject it, then there will be a two-year period in which it'll continue, during which the European Union and the UK government will have time to negotiate some kind of alternative arrangement. So this part of the deal was an important aspect for the hard Brexiteers and British nationalists who didn't like the idea of a deal being foisted upon them permanently. You know, the idea being that this deal could just last ad infinitum. So in order to ensure that didn't happen, it was important for them for there to be some mechanism in place that could end it at some point. Uh, they wanted that mechanism to be the UK government having the discretionary power to end it at will. The European Union obviously didn't like that because it could mean that they just ended it on day one after the implementation of the agreement. So in order to get around that, the Johnson administration negotiated some autonomy for the Northern Ireland government, the Stormfront government. Stormfront government? I'm just, actually, I'm not sure how that's pronounced. But anyway, the Northern Ireland devolved government will have the right to decide that, although only after five years. So some good negotiation there. That was actually a legitimate compromise by both sides to get that provision. Uh, the final difference here with the Theresa May agreement is that the UK will not stay in a customs union with the EU in lieu of a deal negotiated during the two-year transition. So that was obviously important for British nationalists and Brexiteers again who did not want the default for a failed uh, trade agreement during the two-year transition to be continued membership in the customs union. So all told, some concessions by everybody, pretty nice agreement in that regard. So the question now is, will the British Parliament actually vote to pass the deal? And the British Parliament has done an excellent job of doing flip all in terms of passing Brexit deals over the past couple of years. So people are a little anxious that this deal won't get passed. They're anxious because, of course, the Johnson administration has said that it will not seek an extension to Brexit negotiations if no deal is reached by the end of October, which is their official final deadline. So Parliament responded to that threat by passing what's called the Letwin Act. And the Letwin Act basically serves to activate the Bin Act, a different act. Uh, the Bin Act was a bill that required the Johnson administration, requires, I should say, the Johnson administration to request an extension to Brexit negotiations uh, if there is no deal in place by a certain time, that time has passed, uh, and if no deal has been, and this is an important detail here, if no deal has been accepted by Parliament by that deadline. So that's important because that's where the Letwin Act comes in. Uh, the Johnson administration negotiated this new Brexit deal with the European Union and brought it to the Parliament for approval. If it could get approval, then it doesn't have to, doesn't have to seek an extension under the provisions of the Bin Act. The Letwin Act says the Parliament approves the deal conditional on actual implementation of the deal. So what that means is that the British government does not have technical approval for the deal as it stands now, but it does have approval to move forward with introducing legislation to implement the deal. And once that legislation to implement the deal is passed, only then does the government officially have approval. So the Letwin Act then technically denies the government approval, which means that the Bin Act is still in effect. There is no deal that's technically been approved, so the government does 
technically, according to the Ben Act, have to seek an approval, an extension rather, to Brexit negotiations. And of course, if you're wondering why all this procedural voodoo is happening, it's because the parliament absolutely does not trust the Johnson administration not to engage in some nefarious trickery to end up with a no-deal Brexit, which a lot of people in parliament suspect the Johnson administration wants and is willing to go to great lengths to get. So in order to mitigate as much as possible the Johnson administration's room to maneuver on that, they passed the Letwin Act to try to force them into a corner and force them uh, to seek that extension, even though there is technically an agreement now that could well be passed. So that's the Letwin Act and the Bin Act, uh, which again serves to illustrate the lack of trust between the various factions involved at this point within the British government. So how does Johnson himself respond to this bill, which states that he is bound by law to seek a Brexit deal, Brexit negotiation extension. His response is to state publicly that he is not required by law to seek an extension to the Brexit negotiations, which suggested for a time that there might be a constitutional crisis in the making, because obviously those are pretty diametrically opposed positions, uh, legally speaking. As it happened, the crisis was avoided. Johnson did send the European Union a letter requesting an extension, but he also sent a let another letter saying that he didn't actually want it. Which, as some of you who may have listened to me discuss this a couple months ago may recall, I doubt anybody does, but on the chance that they do, they may recall that technically this is supposed to be illegal. From what I read, uh, Johnson had threatened to send this letter this additional letter as an addendum to the formal letter requesting an extension. And I had read in a BBC article that this probably wouldn't happen because it would technically uh, be illegal. But I haven't heard any fallout from this. It doesn't seem like he's gotten in trouble for it, so maybe that's just wrong. Uh, but there could be fallout to that pending since it happened pretty recently. We'll see what happens. Suffice to say, there's been no shortage of litigation in the United Kingdom over Brexit and all related diplomatic and legal maneuverings by the various factions. So this could well turn out to be another one, something to watch. Uh, regardless, the Johnson government has technically made the official request for an extension of negotiations. The ball is technically in the European Union's court right now as far as whether they want to do that. Certain countries have been skeptical about that. France in particular has said that they would prefer to just get the damn thing over, no deal or not. But it's also the case that most European countries are not that vested in the issue and would probably grant the extension push came to shove, as seems likely. So most likely there will be an extension to the Brexit negotiations granted. And what the significance of that is, is going to depend, to depend again on whether Parliament actually passes the deal. And that's where the new drama is. So right now the DUP, which is the Conservative Party's coalition partner in Britain, uh, says that they do not, they're not going to vote for it. Uh, the DUP is a regional party based in Northern Ireland and they're opposed to the de facto internal customs regime. They believe that it's a breach of sovereignty and undermines the credibility of London's commitment to Northern Ireland. That kind of ties into the whole Protestant Catholic Irish conflict there that I'm not going to get into because that's a whole giant thing itself. <clears throat> so the DUP says they're against it 
Labour says they're against it, that of course being the major opposition political party in the UK. Um, they say that it's just as bad as May's deal, although I suspect they're just grandstanding for the likely upcoming elections coming up. Um, it could still pass, though. There's going to be some Labour rebels who would probably vote for it. Um, the New Deal is not entirely likable for a lot of critics of the Johnson government and people who are critical of Brexit in general, but it does offer enough concessions to bring some people over, and there's also just general Brexit fatigue at this point amongst a lot of people across the political spectrum. Uh, the trouble for the Tories, of course, is even if they get some Labour rebels, they have rebels of their own who defected from the party and or were kicked out of the party for opposing the Johnson administration's proposed Brexit deal, among other positions. So it's not entirely clear who has the votes to do what. So basically more of the same then, vis-a-vis -vis Brexit votes. <clears throat> if it doesn't pass, and I think a lot of people at this point are hopeful it will, because it's probably about as good a Brexit deal as anybody is going to negotiate, but if Parliament does in fact not pass this, uh, that's going to create some fireworks, because Johnson, again, has said that he is dead set against an extension of the negotiations past the end of October, which means he could then do something crazy <laughs> if he were so inclined. Um, I don't think he will, but we live in interesting times, as the Chinese might say. And so it's anybody's guess just what he might do in the event that his deal is not passed to ensure that he adheres to his commitment to not see negotiations beyond the end of October. Uh, if the opposition, that is to say the Labour Party for the most part, as well as the Lib Dems, uh, if they get an extension on Brexit negotiations after all, and Johnson basically just caves into that, uh, in that case, they would likely push for elections. So if there, is a if there is an extension to the negotiations and the bill does not pass, I suspect at that point that everybody involved would agree that new elections are in order and that those would happen. And in that case, the European Union might actually give unilaterally, might actually unilaterally give the UK an extension just to give them time to hold the election and for a new government with the majority support to be formed that could actually credibly commit to a final Brexit deal. So that's where we are. So my question is, what are we going to do if like Brexit goes away? Like, what are we going to talk about or watch? Do we have to like watch TV or something? Oh, well, that's simple. It's not going away. Oh. Because you see... What we're negotiating now is actually just the beginning of Brexit negotiations. We have not yet even begun to negotiate. <laughs> it's true. In fact, I read today that this was supposed to be the easy part of the negotiation. Oh, boy. Okay. If you had on. to give a, a yearly projection, like how long do you think this would take? You can give an answer in minutes, hours, years, or decades. Gosh, I mean, as far as beating dead horses go, Brexit really takes the cake. So, cake. So, I mean, it really depends on how you want to define it. I mean, in terms of, well, let me explain this. What we're negotiating right now, vis-a-vis -vis Brexit, is the terms of, Bre of the UK's officially leaving the European Union soon, and then what would happen immediately after. Now, part of the agreement that's going to be passed, hypothetically, if, there, if this deal it does eventually get passed, is that there will be a two-year transition period 
in which the UK will not be part of the European Union. It will officially have left, but it will still be a part of the European Union's common market and will still have access to it and will be treated as though it is still technically a member. And the reason they're doing that is to create a time period in which a free trade deal will be negotiated between the UK and the European Union that will finally define the future of economic relations between the UK and the European Union. So what we're seeing now is not the, the negotiation of that final, the terms of that final economic relationship. This is purely a lot of technical and procedural stuff being negotiated right now about the Irish border, about European Union subsidies to British companies, about UK cooperation with EU institutions like the Department of Energy, agricultural subsidies, etc. There is a lot of institutional linkages between uh, UK political institutions and economic institutions between the European Union, and all of those linkages had to be renegotiated for this current Brexit deal. And that's what this current deal being negotiated is about. It's not about the future of economic relations between the UK and EU. Those still have to be negotiated. And as you can imagine, that's going to be just as contentious an issue to negotiate as the current set of issues, probably even more. So that said, to return to Nero's question, how long will these negotiations drag out? It's difficult to say. I think they could reach a free trade deal within the two-year transition period. Because I think Brexit fatigue will play a factor. I think everybody just wants to kill this thing once and for all. I also think that a lot of the most difficult issues, like the Irish border, have actually kind of been settled at this point. A lot of the technical, procedural, difficult stuff has gotten out of the way. Now they just kind of have to get down to the degree to which they want to engage with and be connected to the European economy. And it makes a lot of sense to have a free trade deal in which they have access to the common market just because it's right on their doorstep. It's a natural trading partner. It really makes too much sense not to do it, economically speaking. I know a lot of people like the idea of signing any number and any kind of free trade deals with the rest of the world and eschewing Europe, but I have a really hard time believing that they're going to get more economic growth and benefit out of doing it like that than they will be with tightly engaging with the European economy. So for that reason, I think they're going to get the free trade deal. But there's a caveat I want to add here, which is that even though the UK has left the European Union, there's going to be endless frustration by one group or the other in the UK with the degree that the UK is engaged with the European economy. Do they stay in the customs union? Do they stay with regulatory alignment? There are any number of degrees with which you can engage with another economy. And that is going to be endlessly debated for decades, I would suspect. <laughs> and, the, and that's not a joke. I'm not exaggerating. And the reason I think that's the case is because I think that people who are remainers, as they call them, people who want the UK to stay in the European Union, are going to fight hard for ever more integration. And they're going to fight just as hard as the people who did not want the UK and the European Union to begin with fought against the UK's membership in the European Union from the day it entered in the 1970s. When the UK entered the European Union, there was lots of nationalists who were dead set opposed to it as a violation of British sovereignty. And from the 70s all the way up to the Brexit referendum, all the way up till now, they have fought hard against it. 
And I think the Remainers are going to take on that role now. And it's just going to be a running sore in British politics going forward. <clears throat> I guess I, I should have said in addition to minutes, days, years, decades, I should have said lifetimes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think it's going to be a constant issue. I don't, you know, kind of like what uh, with the Brexiteers before the Brexit referendum, it wasn't always a hot button issue for them. It was something they fought for at opportune moments. And then it kind of resurrected as a major political issue, but it wasn't necessarily a running issue. Uh, but I think it will pop up again and again once the UK leaves the European Union. Uh, that people want more engagement and maybe even there could be a campaign in future to get the UK back in the European Union. So really not much has been settled and there's a lot of enmity between the different factions remain and leave in the UK that's built up and that's going to have to unwind as well. And will no doubt unwind in a way that is not going to be entirely civil, <laughs> suffice to say. So yeah, this is going to be a new feature in British politics in the same way that people wanting the UK to leave the European Union, now there's going to be people agitating, uh, if not to join back in, then to integrate more tightly. And so good luck with that. And there is your Brexit update for the week. So before we run out of time here, I guess we're kind of running a little short by now. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll try to get through as many of these questions as possible. <coughs> let's see. So let's say first essay question. You talked about the U.S. not necessarily needing more political parties before due to the two parties' capabilities to incorporate new ideas and grassroots movements. Are new ideas given priority by the parties or do they simply become part of the party, agen party agenda without necessarily be being given much attention? Could you give an example of a grassroots movement that became part of a party agenda and making it into legislation? And how long did that roughly take? That's a big question. Let me see if I can cut into that. So we're talking here specifically about the United States and its two-party system. And other countries, you have multiple parties and they all cater specifically to very specific interests and perspectives, you know, e.g. Green parties catering to environmentalists, liberal democratic parties catering to what we would call in the U.S. libertarians and et cetera, et cetera, pro-labor parties, pro-business parties, what have you. Here in the U.S., we have two political parties, but they build coalitions amongst these different interest groups uh, by catering to their different interests and proposing legislation that is amenable to their interests. So in effect, it's the same coalition building process, but it happens within a two-party system rather than a multi-party system. So that was the gist of my argumentation there. So this person is asking then for basically an example. Uh, are new ideas given priority by the parties or do they simply become part of the party agenda without necessarily being given much attention? It's not either or, it's actually both. Um, there are new ideas that political parties will give in priority to, uh, to try to build support with this group or that group or whichever group that they think is, uh, what, that they're targeting um, but there's also grassroots activism that basically just generates from the bottom up changes in policy platform. You know, uh, in Texas, for example, Democrats are relatively conservative. They're further right along the political spectrum than Democrats in other parts of the state. And so if there's an idea that catches on here that might not be popular in other parts of the state, the Democratic Party in Texas will adopt that. And if that becomes popular 
in other areas, then maybe the Democratic Party will just kind of adopt that as a part of the platform uh, in order to try to exploit that popularity. So it's one part political party machinations. You know, there are some positions, issues, etc., that they'll push at the national level to try to appeal to people, but it's also it also happens organically from the grassroots, at which point the party will act opportunistically to try to exploit it. Uh, let's see, so then could I give an example of a grassroots movement that became a part of a party agenda and made it into legislation? That's easy, that's the Tea Party movement. Um, it seems like a million years ago almost since politics in the US has changed so dramatically since 2016, but during the Obama administration, there was a mass movement uh, by conservatives in the United States that was viscerally anti-Obama and was very, I don't want to say libertarian per se, but it very much pushed traditional conservative notions of economic policy and social policy. I won't get into all of what the specific policies they preferred were, but they were definitely very conservative and very much a reaction to the Obama administration. And uh, that was a grassroots movement. Um, I know so some people would critique that because there was it did get funding pretty early on from wealthy benefactors. But I think there was genuine a genuine uh, dislike of the Obama administration amongst a wide swath of conservative America. So I don't think it was astroturf, uh, as they say in the United States. I don't think it was like a fake artificial movement. Uh, so that said, that movement took off and uh, the Republican Party went with it hook line, you know, just went with it completely and backed it. And uh, it ended up becoming so powerful a movement that elected so many politicians uh, into office that it created tension between the establishment Republican Party and the Tea Party Republicans who had been voted in by these uh, activists, I guess, I guess is what you could call them, by the movement. So they didn't necessarily get a lot of legislation passed because a lot of it was controversial, uh, but they definitely had an impact on the Republican Party leadership. There was a number of times during the Obama administration when uh, Democrats in Congress, if not Obama himself, and his administration would negotiate with the Republican Party to try to reach some kind of compromise on some issue or bill and successfully did so only to have the bill fail uh, because Tea Party Republicans broke with the Republican leadership and voted against the bill because they didn't like it. And uh, so even if they didn't necessarily get a lot of legislation passed, they definitely had an impact legislatively in the United States. So that's an example uh, of a movement gaining traction in the United States and then influencing party politics and party decision-making. Uh, that's the most modern example I could probably think of. Um, Trump may or may not qualify for that. I'm a little skeptical since that's not really a movement per se. Uh, but for a leftist equivalent, you, would co you could go back to the civil rights movement. That would certainly be the high profile movement there. The anti-war movement in the United States and during the 1960s against the Vietnam War, that's probably another example. <clears throat> How long did it roughly take? That's the last part of the question here. Um, it can happen really quickly. Like with the Tea Party, they were in in a couple of years. They were a major faction within just a couple of years. Uh, the anti-war movement in the 60s took longer. And, you know, sometimes it can take uh, 10 years or more. You know, if, you're, uh, if your idea is not relatively popular or well-known and you're starting from a very small base of support, it can... <clears throat> It can take a lot of political activism, agitating, what have you, to draw attention to your cause and build up support for it. And in that case, it can take a while.
if it's something really dramatic that people are really passionate about and is in the news a lot, you know, for the Tea Party, it was Obama's election and some of his policies for the civil rights movement. It was the oppression and disenfranchisement of black people. For the anti-war movement, it was the Vietnam War. All of those were hot-button topics and so got a lot of attention. That made it relatively easy for activists to move in, generate a lot of grassroots support for new ideas, and for those ideas then to get adopted by major political parties. Okay, second essay question. <laughs> Are you familiar with the proposed tax reforms by the OECD, and could you explain them? Will the proposed... Will the prepossessed changes to international tax law necessarily force big multinational corporations into playing a fair share in taxes, or will they just have different ways to avoid them? Which countries and or organizations will benefit from these changes, and who will be the losers? Okay, but the answer here is pretty simple. No, I am not familiar with the proposed tax reforms by the OECD. I would have to read more about them. I think I did see a headline about them, but I didn't read too much into it. You know, the thing about the OECD and its tax reform proposals is that they generally don't go anywhere. There was a big spurt in tax reform in Europe over the past 10 years that had to do uh, with tax evasion and uh, uh, what did they call them? Secret bank accounts, basically. Swiss bank accounts being sort of the traditional reference point there. Uh, after the 2008 financial crisis, there was a big, obviously, economic downturn in Europe. And uh, one of the ways that European governments responded to that was to try to crack down on tax evasion to try to maintain the continuity of tax revenue, because obviously tax revenue normally falls precipitously during economic downturns. And the hope was that by attacking tax evasion, among other measures, that they could try to prop up tax revenue and in turn maintain government spending and in that way uh, help counteract the effect of the downturn in economic activity. So. That led to a big spurt. The OECD was involved in that effort as well, but that kind of was an exception. Generally, during economic times that are relatively decent, there's not a lot of political capital to work with to pass a lot of big tax reforms. Um, that's kind of a meta commentary though. Again, I'm not familiar with the tax reforms in question, so I can't really comment too much on them. Third essay question. If you paid attention to the national elections in Switzerland today, what are your thoughts on the shift towards more climate policy, politics? And what does this entail since a lot of surrounding countries seem to be going a different direction? I was not even aware Switzerland had elections, so I can't comment on that either. The last thing I remember about Switzerland was the uh, referendum on, I wanna say women's rights. It was some kind of women's rights type bill that was proposed and voted on. I don't quite remember the specifics of that. Yeah, that's something for me. Ask me again next week. I'll try to read more about that in the meantime, uh, but I don't have much on it now. So my apologies, I only really answered one of the three questions. Uh, so I'll try to do better next time. I'll try to look into some of that stuff and have something for you next week or whenever the next time we do this will be. Or you can email me, that works too. <laughs> I do have an email, so if you're interested in commenting, giving me feedback, that's always appreciated. Um, I think that should be wandering around in chat somewhere. Yep, it's in the command. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so with the time we have left, question by Fuzzy Cord. What problems do centrally planned economies typically face? USSR and Venezuela seem to have a, seem to have a bad track record. How is China different from those two examples? Uh, China's way different from those two examples. Uh, 
centrally planned economy, what, okay, well, first part of the question, what problems do centrally planned economies typically face? The big problem is rationing, because generally they're pretty shit at pricing. Uh, the principal impetus behind pricing in a centrally planned economy is political considerations, uh, which sounds great on paper, but until you consider that bureaucrats in charge of doing that generally have very little connection to reality. Uh, pricing is hard. You know, you can make a lot of money in pricing. Me being a dumbass, here's a little aside for you. Uh, me being a dumbass in grad school, I never took a class called transfer pricing, uh, which is a class that explicitly taught how to maximize pricing for companies that have international operations. And apparently you can make pretty good money doing that. But I didn't take it because I was interested in focusing on qualitative analysis and classes related to that. Like I said, I was a dumbass. If anybody in grad school, I hope, I would think, can probably relate to that. So that said, that missed opportunity aside, pricing is hard and centrally planned economies are just not very good at it because they don't really have all of the information they need about consumer preferences, desires, to say nothing of the industrial priorities and needs of various different industries uh, with which to make a perfect or near perfect uh, allocation of prices. And the reason it has to be perfect or near perfect is that any deviation from equilibrium creates distortions in the market and that can create big problems. Uh, that creates big problems even in economies that are not centrally planned and centrally planned ones though it's even more problematic. Uh, one of the most useful things about prices in free market economies is that you can argue not that they're not perfect representations of market equilibrium and market information but at least reliable uh, containers of market information about the economy. You can't really do that with prices in a command economy and so industrial actors, producers, consumers, etc., cannot really plan around prices in the same way. And so that creates problems for supply chains. So, you know, all of these problems with pricing and allocating resources, they kind of center around information and managing information. In a centrally planned economy, you have all of the information, or you try to get as much information as possible, and you try to compute it and calculate it, etc., such that you produce a certain amount of goods to meet a certain amount of demand. But it's just really difficult to do that in a really calculated way because so much information is involved. I mean, the larger the economy, the more combinatorially complex it becomes to manage like that. In a decentralized economy, you don't have to plan like that. You can use heuristics. And in effect, that's what free market pricing is. It's a heuristic along with profits. Pricing and profits are free market heuristics that can be used by economic actors to allocate resources. And it's not perfect, but it's a lot more efficient and it's a lot more manageable since the decision sets and the calculations and estimations that have to be made by economic actors in a free market system using those heuristics is much simpler than the types of calculations that are having to be made by a centrally planned economy that has to include calculations for potentially hundreds of millions of consumers, you know, potentially billions, if not trillions of economic decisions and actions that have to be accounted for inputs, outputs. It just gets really complicated really fast, especially in a developed economy. And for one economic actor, a central planner to manage all that is basically impossible. You can't even really argue that a supercomputer could manage it. 
because the more, well, in order to have a supercomputer, you need a more complex economy to produce all the components and whatnot. And that itself increases the complexity of the calculations. So in a sense, as our computing power increases, so too does the technology and supply chains correspondent to producing that computing power, which in turn makes, makes the economy even more combinatorially on complex, which in turn requires even more computing power to manage all of it. So the computer, computing power required to manage centrally plan an economy increases along with uh, the complexity of the economy. I hope that made sense. I think I got a little ahead of myself there, but I think you get the gist of it. So that's a problem. Pricing, allocation of resources, computing information, all of that kind of comes together to make a lot of problems with centrally planned economies that manifest as, like I said, rationing. You generally end up with shortages in industries that need certain goods and shortages for consumers. And so, because you just don't produce enough stuff of what you need, rationing. That can take different forms. It can be waiting in line for a long time uh, or it can be some kind of system by which goods are distributed by a ration book, which is how they do it in Cuba. Uh, but generally, it's, there's just always shortages, almost invariably, because of those deficiencies in the way centrally planned economies are fundamentally structured. Uh, the Soviet Union is the classic case study in that. Venezuela has kind of become a classic case study in the problems with price fixing and mismanaging oil revenue, which they've also certainly done. But it's not a centrally planned economy per se. It, they haven't really gone that route fully yet. The government has definitely intervened heavily into the economy by trying to fix prices and trying to heavily regulate the economy and nationalizing industries and creating a general sense of economic mayhem. Just a lot of those policies have not been good. I know I saw a lot of people think that uh, there's an economic war being waged by saboteurs within Venezuela in cahoots with foreign powers. That may or may not be true to whatever degree, but even if it is, I don't think it would matter because fundamentally fixing prices and managing the economy the way they have was pretty much almost guaranteed to wreck the economy. So I don't know that Venezuela is an example of a bad centrally planned economy. It's more an example of just a bad economy, a badly managed economy, if you like. So how is China different from these two examples? Well, it's different from these two examples because one, it doesn't have a centrally planned economy anymore, so it's not like the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a little more similar to the Venezuela in the sense that they have a lot more economic intervention. Uh, well, that is to say government intervention into the economy. But China is different in that they're actually good at it. <laughs> That's the long and short of it. The Chinese government, uh, that is to say the Communist Party of China, has proven to be much more competent in the way that it intervenes into its markets. That's not to say that it does a great job of it, uh, that it, there aren't consequences and that its economic policy doesn't leave a lot to be desired. But compared to Venezuela, yeah, they look like geniuses in comparison. So they're definitely better at it, uh, I would argue. So next question, can you shortly ask him if he knows the AFD party in Germany? Yes, the alternative for Germany. Wait, yeah, the alternative for Germany party. I think that's what AFD stands for. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, basically, sorry, what was Where that? Where D is Deutschland, not Germany. Oh, Deutschland, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's the English. Alternative is the English, uh, yeah. the English translation. I have no idea what alternative is in German. <clears throat> yeah, the AFD is like uh, Germany's manifestation of the populist wave of political 
revolutions that have swept the world. Not just the developed world now, but just everybody. And uh, their big thing is immigration. They actually started as a Europe. They actually started up during the Eurozone crisis as an anti-austerity party. And uh, well, now that's not entirely, partly anti-austerity, but also anti-bailout. They didn't want the German government bailing out Greece and blowing a bunch of taxpayer dollars on uh, similar such activity. So that was how they got started, but they weren't really popular until the immigration crisis. That's really where they really got big. A lot of people in Germany were really upset about the way that Angela Merkel just kind of opened up the country's borders and let in hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees slash immigrants, depending on how you want to frame that. And they didn't really see the, uh, what was the other part? Not the Labour Party. CDU is the Conservative Party and the SDP is the left party. So a lot of people who were critical of the immigration crisis and the way the Merkel government was managing it did not turn over, turn on the CSU slash CDU and start voting for the CDP, SDP, because they didn't trust the SDP any more to manage the issue than they did the CDU slash CSU. They were both seen as institutional parties. And uh, it was seen, that is to say, pro-immigration policies were seen as a kind of bipartisan uh, consensus amongst the institutional parties. And so that led to a lot, a surge in support, if you like, for the AFD. And they've ridden that to some power, not a whole lot. Uh, and they've kind of got the wind knocked out of their sails a bit by the fact that the Merkel government has moved against immigration. You know, both of the major institutional parties have recognized that immigration is a sensitive issue and that a lot of people don't want open borders and don't want uh, immigrant, well, okay with some immigration, but not a whole lot. And so they've recognized that and they've changed their political platforms accordingly, and that's sort of taken some votes back away from AFD. But they're definitely still there. It's worth mentioning here that the AFD is most popular in East Germany, the part of Germany that was run by communists during the Cold War. And that's, this is also the part of Germany that has actually received the least number of immigrants, if I'm not mistaken. So it kind of speaks to the lingering impact of communist political culture on East Germans and uh, also the fact that they were not exposed to the same immigrants and, uh, well, the same sort of immigration that West Germany was during the same time period, which kind of inculcated a sense of tolerance amongst West Germans. That doesn't seem to exist as much among East Germans. It's also worth noting that a lot of younger folks in East Germany who have grown up in the new Germany and who are probably more tolerant of newer people, immigrants, etc., have actually moved out of East Germany in search of opportunities since the economy in East Germany never really fully recovered from the end of communist rule and the end of the Cold War. So as a result, the people in East Germany today are disproportionately uh, older. They tend to be less educated. They tend to be less exposed to cosmopolitan lifestyles, less urban, uh, etc. So basically all of the things that you would associate with anti-immigrant political opinions. So that's no shock there. Uh, but the fact that it's so concentrated in East Germany gives the AFD a lot more political power regionally and locally in East German politics, and that kind of gives them a basis from which to project uh, their political influence and power into the rest of Germany, and uh, in turn acts as their base at the national level. But I don't know that they have a lot of natural room to grow beyond East Germany. There's certainly some. There are people in West Germany who have voted for them for sure, but again, uh, that popularity seems to be on the wane a little bit since the other parties have moved against, uh, have hardened, if you like, their immigration policy.
So that's a quick and dirty on the AFD, or at least what I can remember of it. Again, I'm no expert, so if we have any Germans in chat, please add whatever information you feel I may have uh, missed that is important. So how are we doing? Doing well. We're at 2 hours 46 for the recording, so if you want to have any closing thoughts, that would be a good time for it. Okay. Let's see. It's been a busy couple of weeks. I haven't really had much room for questions given how much stuff has been happening. Oh yeah, and I've still got more notes. Actually, I could probably end on that. I know we had two more questions, but I don't think I can answer them in 10-15 minutes. So uh, we'll save those for next time. As well as some of the ones maybe I skipped from last time. Um, so some other events going on in the world. Mass protests in Spain. You may remember the whole Catalan separatist issue from a while back, Neuro. Yep. Yeah, so the trials of the leaders of that separatist party have finished, and they were sentenced to very long sentences, uh, long terms in jail. And that went over about as well as you might expect amongst the supporters of the separatist party in Catalonia. So there have been mass protests there as supporters have tried to well, it's not really clear what they're trying to. The whole problem with the Catalan, Catalonia separatist movement is that they've never really been good at strategy. They've never really had a coherent plan uh, by which to try to pursue independence for Catalonia. That was sort of the genesis of the movement for independence in the first place, you know, back when that started last year. Um, their plan, their grand master plan for separating Catalonia uh, was to get 51% basically of the legislature vote narrowly for a referendum, uh, have nobody vote in the referendum except people who supported Catalonian independence, and then to declare independence. Well, it didn't work, <laughs> unsurprisingly. The Spanish government wasn't having that. And now the, pro the plan seems to be to just protest against the sentences, against the separatist leaders, in the hopes that maybe that can galvanize more support and perhaps go lead to another referendum. I think the Catalan national, well, the Catalan government, the regional government has said that they're going to push for a new referendum, but given what happened in the last one, that seems pretty unlikely. So protesting for the sake of protesting without a lot of strategy is not a winning recipe. And that kind of seems to be where they're at now. Iraq protests. <laughs> Mass protests in Iraq over the general piss-poor quality of public services. That's generally been the genesis of several protests in Iraq over the past few years. There had been higher hopes in Iraq recently, as we discussed not long ago, because of a new technocratic government that came into power as a result of reformists performing well in a recent election, but hasn't led to much. People are disappointed, and now they're hitting the streets again to try to push once again for their politicians to actually do something useful. The response from said politicians has been to pay thugs to kill and attack them. Not ideal. And that kind of suggests that the institutional powers that be in Iraq are entrenching themselves and capturing state institutions rather than democratizing and moving towards more liberalized governance. It may be that the reformist parties that performed well in the recent election could turn that around if they continue to do well, but it seems... I'm pessimistic in general, but I can't really argue that too well, so I'll back from that. But for now, mass protests against the coalition government 
and some violence involved as the government basically responds by not meeting the substantive demands of the protesters. Mass protests in Lebanon. So the Lebanese government is facing a deteriorating economy and in turn deteriorating revenue. Their solution to this uh, was to try to tax voice over internet protocol, uh, VoIP, that is to say, in the hope that they could generate some revenue from that. This was particularly aggravating for the public because that included WeChat, which is a principal form of communication amongst people in Lebanon. And the joke I heard uh, in the article I read about it was that WeChat was pretty much the only thing in Lebanon that actually works at this point. So the public was, unsurprisingly, ripshit angry that the government would try to tax the one thing that actually works. And the, gov the broader public, in turn, is now protesting against the government in an effort to try to get them to withdraw the tax, which they did and to also try to instigate some generic unspecified wider change. It's not really clear what their game plan is at this point. Some people have been calling for the quote unquote fall of the regime, which was a main chant, was a big chant during the Arab Spring 10 some years ago. Can't believe that was 10 years ago now. Um, but that seems to be the extent of their planning. Attack the government, try to pressure them into doing something and then the economy gets better, I guess. Again, doesn't seem to be a lot of coordination here yet. There could be in future, but for now, not a lot of uh, coordination. Okay, mass protests in Chile. <laughs> in Chile, uh, the economy is in a, has been in a downturn. Um, commodity prices are going down. Chile's economy is disproportionately dependent on the export of copper, if I'm remembering correctly. So prices are down, the economy is down, tax revenue is down, so the government hiked prices for the metro in Santiago. Well, a lot of students in Santiago are very poor and depend disproportionately on the metro for transportation. They became ripshit pissed and are now protesting en masse, and particularly violently. They've burned the several metro stations as well as other forms of public transportation in Santiago. Uh, to the point that the government has declared a national emergency, mobilized the National Guard and police, and is now patrolling the capital of Santiago, trying to repress any further mass protests. The government, for its part, has said that it's willing to listen and negotiate, but as far as I know, they haven't actually uh, reversed the metro price increases. Please correct me if I'm wrong on that. So, other dumb things that have happened this past week. North, Mas North Macedonia and Albania uh, were in negotiations to join the European Union. The accession talks had a summit uh, this past week, and that summit ended in failure uh, because France spearheaded an effort by other like-minded countries uh, to block the entry of North Macedonia and Albania into the European Union because they believe that the preconditions that should be met for acceptance into the European Union should be stricter. Um, these measures usually include things like economic reforms, opening up the economy, uh, anti-corruption reforms to try to purify, if you like, governance, uh, among other sundry measures, usually technical procedural. In this case, the principal issue seems to be immigration. A lot of these countries in the Balkans are primary routes for human traffickers smuggling immigrants into Europe. And there seems to be a desire on the part of Paris, if not also other governments, uh, to try to get 
Albania, North Macedonia in particular, to try to clamp down on illegal immigration moving through their territory and to, prof and to professionalize and meet up their immigration services. So it's worth pointing out here that France only really had a coalition for Albania, I believe it was the case, uh, not so much for Albania. With Albania, it was pretty much just France, I believe. No, no, with North Macedonia, it was just France by itself that held up the accession, accession talks. Um, this was not an ideal outcome. European Union reps were pretty embarrassed and said that it was a uh, wrong decision, basically. It was a mistake, I think is what they, what they officially said. It's a mistake. So North Macedonia's government has called for new elections. Their president had said that if the accession talks failed, uh, he would resign. Uh, I don't think he's resigned, but he is calling new elections. So that's not great because North Macedonia and I think to a lesser degree Albania, but certainly North Macedonia has been the target of Russian influence operations because obviously Moscow is not in the least interest in having another country join NATO. Um, probably recognizes that they can't really stop it over the long run, but they're going to make the effort anyway, if only to try to apply pressure to the West uh, in order to use this leverage in the ongoing confrontation over the Ukraine. So the reason this is a mistake here in particular is then that there will be an opportunity here uh, for Russia, along with other opponents of uh, these countries joining NATO to kind of intervene here and try to throw the election in North Macedonia at least, if not also a potential change in leadership in Albania, to try to get anti-NATO leaders in power who will scupper the accession talks. Oh, sorry, I said NATO, didn't I? I said European Union. I think they're already on their way to joining the NATO. NATO's preconditions are a little softer uh, than the European Union's. Um, for the European Union, uh, getting leaders in power who oppose joining the European Union, and that could delay things considerably, uh, depending on how that works out. So a bit of an embarrassment for the European Union. Probably should have negotiated all of that stuff beforehand, before the summit, didn't happen. And so now foreign policy in the Balkans is going to get a little more interesting, even more so than it already is. Mexico. Oh boy, how do we describe this? You've got three minutes. So in Mexico, uh, they've got a cartel problem. I think everybody knows about that, so I don't think I need to explain that too much. So one of the most powerful cartel leaders was a guy named Guzman. He was arrested, extradited to the United States. I think he's in prison now. His son has nominally been left in charge of his operation. I think he's in charge of La Familia cartel. Something to that effect. I think. Don't quote me on that. So what happened recently is that the Mexican police um, claim, Mexican government, I should say, federal agents claim to have tripped over they accidentally discovered Guzman's son during a routine patrol in a city, whereupon they detained him and took a mugshot, mugshot even. So the response by the cartel was to go apeshit and dispatch all of their gunmen to basically attack the city. They attacked the federal soldiers who were there. They attacked the police. They attacked public transportation. It was a big mess, and the federal government actually did not have the power to fight back at least on the ground, and so the federal police involved actually released Guzman's son in lieu of being able to defeat the cartel forces that had suddenly arrayed against them. 
Now, the suspicion is that the Mexican government is bullshitting and that it wasn't that they accidentally tripped over Guzman, but rather that they planned an operation to seize him that went catastrophically wrong. And that in turn has turned into a huge embarrassment for the Mexican government, which has in effect been defeated in an all-out firefight by the cartels, or at least by a cartel. Although other cartels are going to kind of note the outcome there and will probably take note, which means this probably won't be the last time it happens. So not great for the Mexican government, embarrassing, really illustrates the power of the cartels that they're able to mobilize that kind of firepower and at very short notice, they were able to do it very quickly. All right. 15 seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to World Discussion with Agent Smith. Fuzzy Cord for handing along questions. Myself for handing along questions. Agent Smith, what an episode. We covered so much random stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and we're at the three hours. Tight. <laughs> Right in. There. What a very jam-packed episode. <laughs>